everybody and welcome to the Smorgasbord for the last time ever. I'm Tom Shapira and with me as always... Hello, I'm Sean Edry. When the first living thing existed, I was there waiting. When the last living thing dies, my job will be finished. I'll put the chairs on the tables, turn out the lights, and lock the universe behind me when I leave. Guy Fieri has gotten grim recently. <laughs> and with us, not as always, but he has been here before... Hey, it's me, Max Nostorowicz. The mighty Max himself. I loved that show growing up. Yeah. Better than Fantastic Max. You remember the one with the baby in the spaceship? No, I don't. <laughs> Good for you. This is our end of the year special, which is also our end of the show special. And therefore, we brought in our favorite guest, uh, Max Nostorowicz. Oh, thank you. Who writes for Sequart. This show is, by the way, hosted, as always, on Sequart.org, the best news, reviews, and critique website that you can find for comics and pop culture. And they also publish books, uh, like my book. There possibly is an upcoming book of which both me and Max are involved, and I don't think I can say anything further because details are not finalized, right? Yeah, I think so. I've seen, like, the final draft of it, I think. I don't know. We'll see. It was supposed to come out a while ago, but, well. There is a book. It might have me. It might have Max. It might have the both of us. Who knows? You should buy it either way, because we like the monies. I am both feeling left out, jealous, and intrigued. It's an interesting combination of feelings. Well, you can also write a book, Sean. Nobody stops you. I certainly can. Also, to our listeners, Sequart is on Patreon and will continue to be on Patreon once we're gone. It will still be the best place to get comics news reviews and critiques. So if you're interested in smart criticism in comics, come on down. So, as usual, we have our uh, annual awards, the Smorgies, which we give in in various specialty categories. And as usual, Sean makes up the names because that's what his best is, right? <laughs> that's what I do. You're, you're the best there is at what you do, and what you do is name award categories. Yeah. <laughs> Smoke if you got them. <laughs> so, let's kick it off with the Everybody Loves Chris Award for Best Male Character. And I am going to give it to Jughead. As he appears in Archie by Mark Wade and a rotating bunch of artists. I have talked about how much I've enjoyed the Archie reboot plenty of times on the podcast, including to Chips Darsky's face himself. But this year, I feel like Wade tapped into something, a level of this character that wasn't necessarily on full display before. Someone who is so clearly the real heart of the story, to the extent that I'm still mad that the Jughead title got stuck on indefinite hiatus. Uh, in the most recent Archie arc, he stands up to Betty's parents and manipulates circumstances so that she can actually have some time with Archie after this huge accident happened. And it really amazed me that Wade has made such a consistent effort to keep... Jughead, on the one hand, detached from the rest of the world, right? This is someone who is not perky and happy and part of the social group. And yet he cares so much that he goes out of his way to help people without seeming like he cares. I mean, I guess it's even more of a contrast when you consider what they're doing on Riverdale, where it's ridiculous even by CW standards. People really seem to like that show. I don't know. Damned if I know why. That show will be mentioned again some other time during this recording. Max, you can't see me right now, but I am literally doing, like, Mr. Burns, like, excellent. I am looking forward to that. So, yeah, Jughead, my best character of 2017. Okay. Uh, Max, you want to go next? 
Yeah, so I haven't been reading a whole lot this year, uh, just from maybe just disinterest, and also I, I recently purchased a home, so I've been like, oh, I cannot spend as much on comics, nor do I have as much time as I would like. But my uh, best male character of the year is Dees Reyes from My Favorite Thing is Monsters, written and drawn by Emil Ferris. Mm. Oh, yeah, I've read great reviews on that. That was on the best off list of so many websites. Yeah, yeah. So, like, I remember back when you asked me to be on this, I'm like, crap, I need to read some stuff. So, um, I saw this listed in a lot of different places, like, as, like, halfway through the year, like, best of. And, uh, I actually just finished it yesterday, being like, oh, crap, I gotta finish this thing. This, it is a long, long book. It is 413 pages. Whoa. Yeah. Um, I'll get more into the actual book later, but, um, Diz Reyes, he's initially shown as, like, a Hispanic young, ish man he's probably like in his teens growing up in chicago in the 1960s he's got a very um suave appearance and he's he's covered in like tattoos and such so he he initially has that gangster kind of look to him that you might associate with such an appearance but he and he's very suave around women but he cares very very deeply for his family his uh sister karen who is the main character of that story as well as his mother and you know, he's very into art, like, he takes his sister Karen to, like, an art museum, and his mother, at one, at one point in the story, is diagnosed with, um, cancer, and as, as, it's, as well as seeing, like, this more, like, emotional side, as well as, like, his outward gruff exterior, he has, uh, some demons that are hinted at throughout the story that you kind of get some resolution to, but it was just a very compelling character that I really enjoyed whenever he was on, uh, the, the page in that book. So cool. That's definitely one for the reading list. Yeah, I haven't read it, but it is pretty high up the queue. It has some of the best artwork I've ever seen in a comic. Fair is fair. I'm going to go with a familiar one because we can't have an award ceremony without Giant Days. Uh, I'm going to go with uh, McGraw, the mustachioed one uh, this year. Mostly because. McGraw and not Ed Gamel? Shame on you, Tom. Shame. Uh, well,. It's mostly about character evolution because when he was first introduced, he was always looked from the outside as sort of the, he's the cool, collected, mature one in a cast that's mostly like men, children and women, children, people who are trying to be adult, but not really sure of it. And he's the one who knows exactly what he's doing. But this year, after, you know, a long arc of the character, we finally get to see a bit more of his own life. And we get to see him on the inside and we do get to see him in a more vulnerable points and he therefore becomes much funnier when he loses control and we see him lose control finally. And basically every single character in Giant Days, every main character can be best character of the year X in whatever category you want, you want to buy. Like the pigeon could be a main winner for me. <laughs> and, and I don't think we've seen the pigeon over the last year. But, you know, it's a goddamn great pigeon, I tell you that. I just love him. I just love the way they describe him. And I really like the cartooning that gives so much life to this guy who could have been made so boring if he kept on being the, you know, the good one, the the ultimate guy guy, but is now allowed to be much more human. The fact that they let him have a pretty significant flaw in the latest storyline was kind of a develop. I mean, I felt bad for Susan because, you know, it, it's sort of in a situation where you can see the car crash coming 
But uh, we'll see how it goes. It is, you're right, it's interesting to see where John Allison is taking him. You know, Allison could take him in, in any direction from this point. It'll be, I'm, I'm curious to see where, if he doesn't revert to form and end up being the perfect guy again. Tom, I feel like if you had full control of this podcast, you would just do a smorgasbord best of giant days edition. I might consider once this podcast is over to do like a giant days cast, but I don't know what it is because usually when you do a podcast on a series, like that's, it's pretty popular right now. You know, you have your, your X-Men podcast and your Fantastic Four podcast and your Transformers podcast. You discuss like the fault points and oh, what's the problem with this issue? And every single episode would be, oh, this is great. Oh, this is better. Oh, this is. Perfect. This is perfecter. Well, it would be a, it would be a nice change of pace from I don't know, like the last six months of your guys' show. I would say. <laughs> <laughs> what did Marvel do this week, and how irate will uh, Sean get? Very. <laughs> well, I would be just as irate on a Giant Days podcast. Not that I don't love the book, but I don't love it the way Tom does. A Giant Days podcast would just be you know Tom quoting Daisy, all of it, and then I, I'm not necessarily opposed to that, but you know. I think John Allison would then have, like, grounds to sue for copyright infringement because it would just be like, so, Tom, how are you today? The pigeon won't be my friend. Speaking of quotes, I'm going to pull back the curtain here a little bit on the smorgasbord. Sean, how do you spend a lot of time coming up with the quotes that you pick for each episode? Or I've often wondered, like, does he have, like, does, does Sean have a big, like, tome of quotes that he's, like, waiting to pull out? Like, hmm, today I will use this one. Oh, no, no. Day of. I just, like, what quote suits how I'm feeling right now? Okay. So, yeah. And then I just flipped through a couple of books, and it's like, oh, today specifically, it was like, yeah, it's going to have to be death. It was either death of the endless or lady death, and it was really <laughs> hard choice for Sean. <laughs> like, Neil Gaiman, the guy who makes chaos comics. I'm not, who is it? Is it Brian Polito? No, it's not Brian Polito. It might be Brian Polito. A quote from Lady Death that would accurately describe the end of this podcast? Well, uh, not something that's PG-rated, you know, th- that would be a problem. This is an audio format. <laughs> you know, there was a Lady Death animated film, apparently. There was, it was terrible. Yes, yes. Uh, speaking of Lady Death and the very opposite of Lady Death, Sean, our next award. Uh, so who wants to introduce this category? I'll do it. Okay. So up next, we have the Carrie Fisher Memorial Award for Best Female Character. I'm going to go with Golden Gale, or Gail Gibbons, from Black Hammer, by Jeff Lemire and Dean Armstrong. Probably the Good only choice. actual, like, new, new series that I've read this year. Even though I guess it started at the end of 2016, it's already getting a lot of really good acclaim. So again, it was like, ooh, I'll check out this series. So Gail Gibbons, or Golden Gale, is kind of like a reverse Captain Marvel, um, or Shazam. I'm, I'm calling him Captain Marvel. I'm never calling him Shazam. I'm sorry. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. good, good. Um, it's not gonna happen. But um, move on. So in, in comparison with Billy Batson, um, when he says Shazam, he turns into Captain Marvel. Gail Gibbons was a teenager when she got the magic word, and which I cannot recall what it is right now. But she became like a younger girl, and um, as she she continues, and she you know has has like the powers of Captain Marvel. And you find out as the series goes that she's actually, like, in her 50s, I believe. And she still keeps turning into a young girl whenever she uh, transforms. So you find out that at one point in the story, she well, throughout the entirety of Black Hammer, she's an old woman trapped in the body of a 10-year-old girl, which leads to some very interesting 
scenes and just personality, I guess, because it's not initially revealed that that's the, uh, the circumstances. Yeah, you think she's just like a really warped little girl. Yeah, you think it's like a, like kind of like a hit girl kind of character, but then there's there's actual like meaning and reasoning behind it, which is very interesting. You also get to see what she does after she retires from being Golden Gale. She starts the Golden Family of a bunch of other characters who transformed are older than her, but they are her juniors, I guess. I don't want to spoil uh what that is of what she does, but it was a very very touching scene I didn't I didn't see coming where where that story went with her uh life post superheroing. Yep. Jeff Lemire, that man is busy, busy, busy. They've just announced he's gonna do a new series. And Black Hammer is still ongoing. Uh what's the one that really like Royal City is still ongoing. Descender is still ongoing. Uh he had one graphic novel coming out. He has another one planned. What the hell? Like does this guy sleep? He's been pretty um, productive as far as like what he's had going on for the last couple of years. I feel like, yeah, I mean, I mean, Black Hammer's on hiatus until April, I believe. So, but they, but they have the spinoff, right? Oh yeah, the Sherlock Frankenstein. So it's like it's an hiatus for the artist, but David Rubin is drawing the spinoff, so he still writes that. And yeah, we, we're we're used to people overworking themselves in comics for writers at least because you have your Colin Buns and your Charles Soleil but in their case it's often the case of well you know they kind of average out and some of some of it's good some of it's bad but none of it's super fantastic but Lamire at least critic wise is just like hit after hit you know everybody loves the stuff he does except for the Marvel stuff like everybody loves (laughs) everybody loves his creator own stuff and yeah no so if you're making a best stuff of the year list, there will be one Lemire book in it somewhere. Yeah, we'll we'll, we'll get into more about his work because his he he appears again on this on this award show. I haven't been reading a lot, but yeah. <laughs> so my best female character, uh, longtime listeners are probably sick of hearing me say this, but one last time, uh, in 2017, it really is still Gwenpool for me. <laughs> Uh, she is just one of the most fun characters in comics right now. Entertaining, energetic, someone who keeps you invested in her story and doesn't get bogged down by the need to buy into the company line, whatever it may be at a given point. And at the same time, they have, like, Christopher Hastings has managed to restrain himself from turning her into a cartoon character on the level of Deadpool, which I think that's what we were all expecting when she first started turning up. Like, it was just going to be pink Deadpool. But there is real pathos at the heart of this huge adventure she's having, and I love that that part of her is always on display. She seems superficial when all she wants to do is to be the greatest hero of the Marvel Universe, but she actually does. It's not just about kicks for her. And... It has come to the point where uh, The Unbelievable Gwenpool is the last Marvel book I'm reading. So, you know, I can't speak to how important she is overall. Obviously, you know, I feel like in terms of popularity, she's probably eclipsed by Spider-Gwen and by a lot of new characters. I know there's this whole thing going on now with, uh, with Viv Vision, but something about Gwenpool, about the way that Hastings writes her, and this this tightrope that he walks between not making her so superficial and shallow that she just ends up being 
sort of the worst version of Harley Quinn. And at the same time, she is not going to get stabbed from behind or have her arm cut off and then be like, vengeance, unless it's a parody. The thing with Gwenpool for me is that if you listen to older episodes, you know I really, I enjoy Gwenpool, but the last, the end of the previous arc felt for me like a kind of cop-out and I kind of drop off the series after that one because it felt like they're going for, you know, not super massive changes, but some sort of recognition of the character about her own problems, about her own, like, personal semi-psychosis of, oh, nobody matters but me. And it ends with them sort of going, well, no, I just need to decide not to be that way. And... Yeah, I get it. It's a comedy series and, you know, jokey jokes and meta gags. But stuff like that can be performed while still being able to do from time to time a little bit of pathos, a little bit of actual stakes in the personal terms for the character and therefore for the reader. And it felt for me like Hastings sort of dragged himself as close to the edge as possible, looked over it and said, nah, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna see what's down there. To be honest, I think like that's one of the things that I do find appealing only because I feel like any other Marvel book, specific, even, you know, including any Marvel book that has a woman in the lead would have jumped that line, right? It, it seems almost like such a natural progression to do that, that I almost appreciate the fact more that Hastings swerved away from that and didn't do what was expected because that would have been the most obvious take i'm curious like i'm still we're 25 26 issues into this and i still every month i'm like what is she going to do next i'll probably come back because she's illustrated by guru hero and that's like that's an unfair cheat code to my heart because if you told me oh there's a lady death revival and she's run by guru hero (laughs) i would think i i would like i would be like a strong hard thing of well, it's a terrible concept and a character design, but then again, it's, it, it is Guru Hero, and they can make anything look good. So here's what I gotta ask you, Tom. If it was Guru Hero drawing written by Ray Fox... Like, I don't think Ray Fox is terrible. I think he had some misfires, but if you told me it's Guru Hero and Howard Shaken, then I would be like, ooh. <laughs> Then I would be like, mm, no, that's probably no, 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 no. Nobody can save that trash fire. So I haven't read any Gwenpool, but I've of course seen her around online. However, you guys remember my cancellation award for last year, or most lamentable cancellation, was Doctor McNinja, which is where Christopher Hastings was like, I think, really, really cut his teeth because I mean, I was reading that comic for a better part of a decade online, and. He had, like, a lot of, like, the zany adventures that, you know, I've heard of um, Gwenpool going on, and at some point he got to that edge where it was almost getting too ridiculous, and then the book or the, the, the series kind of started developing that more pathosy kind of thing that wasn't just like, oh... Random thing x Random, yeah, it was a lumberjack disease where, you know, people are turning into giant 50-foot lumberjacks or whatever, or the evil um, motorcycle that's actually a unicorn from a parallel dimension, or time-traveling Ben Franklin and stuff like that. They're sort of, like, you found out why no one knows Dr. McNinja's name and such, and I feel like Hastings has brought over those lessons he learned over to Marvel to, to, to stop, you know, 
Gwenpool from just being another like pink Deadpool, like like you were saying. So, because if she had been that, I think people would have gotten sick of her very quickly. Because Marvel isn't really the sort of place where you have. I don't think you guys would be talking about her. Let's let's just leave it at that. Yep. Okay. Uh, my pick is from an indie book. Ooh, alternative. Uh, I'm choosing uh, Cindy from uh, Cindy and Biscuit by Dan White that had a new issue coming out this year. Uh, Dan White is one of the co-hosts, by the way, of Silence Podcast, one of the best comic book podcasts ever. And it's a series of kid-friendly adventures of this girl, Cindy, and her dog, Biscuit. And they go outside and they splash in the mud and mom is very angry. And also there are monsters, so they she hits them with a stick till they go away. And it's just so... It's this thing that people describe Kelvin and Hobbes to me and they're always like, oh, it's my childhood and, and it captures the boundless end of it. And I can respect that people feel that about Kelvin and Hobbes, but when I look at Cindy and Biscuit, I'm saying, this is what this one makes me feel like. This is what like being a child like. The expressiveness mm. and the endlessness. And there is no... Because for me, something like Kelvin and Hobbes, there's always a bit of distancing between the artist and the character. There's always a bit like looking down at Kelvin, who's like a dupe and a and an idiot and often a jerk. And Cindy can be those things, but the book never judges her for that because she's a kid. And it's always like eye level with her and we're being with her in it. And it's also like it's super fun and expressive and she's just she's just like so perfect as a character to me. As someone who can be the every girl and still appeal to like boy readers. I really hope some big publisher would, would pick it up because right now the only way to get it is to buy it directly from his store, which is nice and all, but he lives in the UK and if you're not there, post it as anything, you know, murder. Next category, Tom, take okay. it away. The HBO award for best miniseries. Uh, shall I start? Because I don't think so because I just talked, so somebody else. So, uh, Max, do you want to go for it? I actually don't have an uh, entry for this one. So, I've been, re- okay, I've been so reading any minis this year. So, so Sean, it's I will up to you. abstain from this award ceremony. <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. Uh, so, my pick is Four Kids Walk Into a Bank by Matthew Rosenberg and Tyler Boss from Black Mask. Uh, this feels like something Ed Brubaker might have written in his prime. It's a group of smart, determined kids who are led into this ridiculous scheme by a girl against whom all circumstances have been aligned. She is well-meaning, but her plan is ridiculous, but her friends go along with it because they're loyal to her. Uh, it's just this group dynamic between these four kids feels so real. Uh, each of them are such different people and they're fleshed out. Even the antagonists of the story are more complex than you might expect to see. Uh, it's just a great work overall, very authentic feeling. The ending, I think, is a, a little too abrupt and omits the fate of a major character. It, it's very rushed, yeah. I, I They've already talking about a sequel, I guess, so maybe that's why, because it started as a mini- and then it was very successful in terms of critical reception. So they were like, well, maybe there's something we can do to, you know, 
make it more open. I would just say, like, Matthew Rosenberg, I know you're listening. Just add, like, a couple of bonus pages at the end of the trade and, like, have an actual ending. But aside from that, like, usually that would be the sort of thing that would get me to not feature a miniseries like this in an award category. Like, I'm saying this is the best one I've read all year. I mean it. Because even with that flaw, it is just so good. It is heartbreaking the way that this girl is trying to hold her entire world together. And her friends, you know, she she has a Cartman in her group. And it is hilarious how that shakes out. Just a really fun and relatively swift. It's only five issues. Uh, and if this is the caliber of work that Black Mask are putting out, good for them. It's like, what if Stranger Things, but crime instead of horror, and also the Coen brothers are directing? Sounds about right. Wait, so just that's just a regular Coen brothers movie then? <laughs> Coen brothers never really had kid protagonists. So uh, like... yeah, no, yeah, I'm, I'm thinking about Sanderson, but yeah, you're right, you're right. It's like very well constructed and su- like surprisingly uh, paced work. The problem is I've read it in issues and it came out pretty much whenever. The first issue was last year and it came out like every three or four months. So by the time issue five came out, I was, oh, issue five is the last one. I thought issue four was the last one. I wasn't even sure. So it probably works. I guess you read it all in one shot. Yeah, all in one go. Okay, that's a problem for me and for the other like couple of thousands of people who read it as a, but in singles, but if again, I'll say it again, if you publish in singles, you should really think those things through. Yeah. You can't just say, "Oh, it'll be better in collection because well, I I'm not going to pay twice for it." And now I have to like pick up through my box and pull out all the issues and like read them in order. I don't know if it, if that's the creator's fault or if it's a scheduling thing with Black Mask. If I had been reading it in singles, I'd be in the exact same boat as you are. Actually, if I had read it in singles, I probably wouldn't have nominated it at all for the award. But um, the fact that I, you know, when you do read it all in one go, it's phenomenal. It's a level of writing that, to be honest, I only knew Rosenberg beforehand from his Marvel work, which was okay, but not on this level. Black Mask. He also did uh, We Can Never Go Home Again, which was also very good. Yeah, but not not as good as this. Like, he he has stepped up lately. Okay, uh, my pick. Shaolin Cowboy, Who'll Stop the Rain, 1 through 4, written and drawn by Jeff Darrow. It's such a spectacular book. To say that it's good looking is, of course, pointless. It's Jeff Darrow book. He couldn't draw bad if you tied him to a chair and forced him at a gunpoint and told him, oh, you know, draw bad. Yeah. And obviously it has tons of gags and joke and boundless imagination and possibly the best fight scenes in comics over the last five years or so. Like, really spectacular work. But it's the way that between all of those jokes and gags, there is something deeper there. This story of a guy uh, who gets sort of lost in his own world and he wants to be like the Shaolin cowboy. He wants to be this transcendent thing that like thinks about the world and cares about the people. And this whole story is about how he fails to notice the world around him in many ways because this world is like the world that Jeff Darrow draws and really our world too is just such a shitty terrible place that forces you into like culture of consumption and feeding and taking and and you know throwing garbage around and not really noticing the villain of the piece is a giant pig ninja I, I don't know if Okja came with it first but for me this one does it better 
who wants to destroy the Shaolin cowboy because he went into a restaurant and he saw the Shaolin cowboy eats his mother. And as far as the Shaolin cowboy is concerned, it was just he just ate something, right? He just ate some bacon. And and for this for this pig ninja thing, it was you know the most important day of his life. And I'm I'm gonna do a little bit of spoiler, but it's okay because it's not it's not really much a plot series. It's more like a you know read it and experience series. When the story ends and when he realizes all the terrible things that happened was because of this, he still feels hungry and he goes into a chicken restaurant. And we see a young chicken going to the window saying, oh, let's go visit mom. <laughs> yeah, and it's funny, but it's also like, oh, right, he's, he's stuck within this terrible cycle and he can't let go. And we're like, we're also stuck in this terrible cycle of like eating and shitting and we can't let go of it. It's a surprisingly deep story about a guy fighting a giant pig ninja and an evil crab who controls people. Shaolin Cowboy's always been one of those series that I've been like meaning to look into and read because it just looks like ridiculous. But uh, yeah, the problem is that the original the original series is out of print because the rights there was this company created by the Wachowskis, like Burlyman Entertainment. Oh yeah, and they published the, the original seven issues, and then the company dropped on the face of the earth. So I guess the rights are sort of in the air. So Dark Horse are printing the new series now. Whenever Jeff Darrow has the time to draw them, but the, I nobody nobody has brought this the old stuff to print, which is a problem and really annoying. But but you know you can enjoy reading it just by itself for all the craziness that he just throws at your face. Yeah, it's Jeff Darrow. Like there's always going to be something to look at. Uh, Max, do you want to do the next one? Sure. Up next we have the Rolling Stones Award for Best Ongoing, and my winner is. Black Hammer by Jeff Lemire and mostly drawn by Dean Ormstam uh, with some other fill-in artists. I was really surprised how much I really enjoyed this series. The gist of the series is a group of heroes is uh, trapped on this farm. Um, they're all kind of Justice League or the archetypal hero stand-ins. You have, as already mentioned, Golden Gale, who's like your Captain Marvel. You have Mark Marks, uh, or Barbalian as he's known as, who's like your Martian Manhunter. You have Abraham Slam, who's kind of your Captain America, but doesn't have any powers kind of hero. And uh, a few other ones, Captain Weird, who's like your Adam Strange sci-fi spacefaring guy. And um, the entire thing is kind of realizing why they're there on this farm that's kind of outside of space-time. Um, the mystery of how they got there, why they're trapped there, why they can't leave, as well as having one issue kind of going through the entire group of characters kind of giving their backstory. Um, so it, it's incredibly well paced for the 13 issues that it is. Um, going with, with Jeff Lemire and his, and his, his creator own stuff, I find that all of his characters have a ton of heart to them. Like everyone in this series is damaged in one way or the other, where, whether it's um, Abraham Slam, like growing old and watching like new heroes, arise and him not being able to keep up with them or barbarian aside from being a literal alien is also gay and has all has had all of his um romantic uh pursuits spurned uh black hammer's daughter who's back on earth trying to figure out like where everyone went and you know because her father was is the uh the, the one hero who died trying to escape the farm so it's just it's an uh, incredibly compelling story it helps if you know 
the tropes of superheroes or where these characters are being drawn from, but I don't think it's required. Like, you don't need to know that, oh, Captain Weird is a Adam Strange stand-in who moves through space-time non-linearly and whatnot. So you don't need to know that, oh, the Dragonfly lady's husband was, like, a Swamp Thing stand-in. So, but it, it's it's just kind of like, oh, that's where they're going. So, or there's a bunch of Kirby analogs as far as, like, character designs or the anti-god being, like, a dark side Galactus Magneto mashup in his visual design. So it's an interesting story. You care a lot about about the characters, and I can't wait to see where it goes next. Admittedly, I sort of soured on it after a while, but I think I will go back to it at some point once it's uh, come out in, in trades, and I can really sink my teeth into it. Yeah, I, I read it kind of all in one sitting, and I, I will admit that like after a while, it's like, okay, where's this going? Where's this going? But then it kind of ends on a big cliffhanger, or the plot actually progresses. Like once you've gotten all your characters established and such, that um, it actually starts to move forward plot-wise. I think like then it starts. To get, then I got like interested in again in it again. But I can I can kind of see where you're what you're saying. Tom, what's your best ongoing? Uh, I'm gonna go with Extremity by Daniel Warren Johnson. That's mostly because I, I, I guess I could just give it to Giant Days every year, but that's not <laughs> fair, right? No. Uh, Extremity, uh, we've talked about the first issue when it came out. It's an ongoing sci-fi saga, which is a bit part Studio Ghibli, part Mad Max, part we still don't know yet about post-apocalyptic Earth, and there's this sworn tribe. And the daughter of the leader used to be an artist, but when she lost her hand to an enemy clan, she became this like fierce fighter, take revenge on anything. And her brother, who should be the new leader, is on the other hand this very shy artistic type who doesn't want to kill anybody. And they're like robots from hidden civilization and dinosaurs and flying bug monsters. And on plot levels, it all really is like stuff you've heard before. But it's just done so well. Like Daniel Warren Johnson can draw the heck out of it. And he can draw the heck out of, uh, you know, personal scenes. And, and giant action scenes. And, and butchery scenes. And technology. And monsters. And if you follow him online, you know, every time he, do, he does a sketch of like a superhero or something, he'll publish it. And his sketches are better than most people like finished work. It's so fun to read. It's like... Even though I have all the issues, I really want when this thing is either completed or long enough through for, for Image to publish it in like a giant hardcover for me to see the art in like absolute sized ways. Because it's just an amazing, fun book to, to go through. Extremity is kind of the book that I wish Umbral had been. Umbral got cancelled at 12 partly because it had been so bogged down with... Anthony Johnson ex expositioning about like the world and the populations and extremity doesn't do that. It just throws you right into the action and gives you these believable characters. And it's like the explanations for all the backstory will come at some point, but it'll come after you care about who these people are to begin with. And that's like the way to do it. I think. Yeah. It's like what the thing that, well, one of the things that everybody liked about Mad Max Fury Road is that, they don't explain stuff that doesn't need to be explained. Like, do we really need to know why they're warring tribes? No, because it's this type of future. Like, that's okay. 
We, we don't need to, an explanation to, oh, why do you have those markings on your face? Well, these markings represent... No, they have those war marks because they're a war tribe and they're on a raiding party and that's what they do. And they just, you know, cut all the bullshit and leave the essential action-adventure world-building plot. Mm-hmm. So, on, on my podcast, Good Brews, Bad Views, we, we're going to have an episode that by the time this airs, we'll have already aired. We did the, um, the Star Wars Holiday Special. As one of our Christmas. Oh episodes. my God! Yeah, we did it as a blind view, so we so we only watched it once. But um, wait, wait, I I thought your podcast name, uh, Good Brews, Bad Views. Where's the bad? It doesn't views? get much worse than the holiday special. Time. Yeah, the, yeah. Um, you just life day racist. That's what Into it's the night. War, it's, the, it's the war on life. Day. Yeah, yeah. It's the war, war on, life, on day. life day. That's what it is. You know, I remember when I was a kid, and we were allowed to just say. Happy Life Day to everybody, but now it's just happy holidays and the politically correct individuals forcing us, you know, Wookiees and Wookiee affiliated people to like celebrate all your Tatooine holidays like they matter. Well, they don't. Well, they don't. They don't. Be Arthur, deliver oh, us. Oh, God. But aside from the uh, bizarre animated section in the middle, which is the best part of the movie, even if the animation itself is ridiculous. My friends and I got into a long discussion about how much do you need to fill in or how much you need to inform. Like recently it came out that the, the, the skull that Luke throws to kill the Rancor was an actual person. Like that skull has a name and it's like, I don't need to know who that was. I mean, it's cool that, you know, some things can be explained, but it's not like, it doesn't have to be explained within the actual universe. Like going back to Mad Max Fury Road, there's a lot of that isn't explained within the movie, but if you look at, like, interviews with the production crew or the director or get, like, I have the, the art book of Mad Max Fury Road, they say, like, oh, all the leather in that movie is supposed to be human skin or whatever and whatnot. Yeah. That. It's, like, it's cool that it's there, but you you don't need to have it. You don't need a line in the movie where someone says, it's human skin. Yeah, yeah. There was actually a co- comics from Vertigo from Mad Max Fury World, which were prequels. Uh, yeah. And I've read them, and other than the fact that they were like badly written and boringly drawn, it was, oh, here's the backstory to the minute of why... Uh, Immortan Joe's fortress is located here, and why is he dressed like that, and where did he pick up his armor? I don't need to know yeah. that. Did this guy go to, like, the, the George Lucas school of writing? There were one or two issues of that book that were enjoyable, because it was kind of, it was like a Furiosa one and the Immortan Joe one. There were one or two that were kind of enjoyable, like, you see Max trying to save some people, but um, he has to end up leaving them, and he's like, don't look back don't look back or something like that, you know, because he knows, like, that they're going to die and he c- he can't fend for them. I think he does, like, turn around, but they end up dying anyway, so it's a lot of tragedy. Uh, there's a few other hints to the previous movies or... The girl that he keeps seeing in the, the flashbacks. Yeah, yeah, or, like, the um, if, if you guys have ever seen uh, Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, at one point, you know, like there's, there's like the big like announce the, the guy who was, who's like the announcer or whatever. Um, yeah, he goes to Gastown to get like the engine for his car, and, and like the, the announcer guy is still alive and like horribly burnt or something like that. So it's like, oh, okay, you're still around. It was kind of just like this is still the same universe as the first couple ones, even if it's 
timeline is kind of wonky. Yeah. It's a question of like, where do you put that information? It's like, I do like the idea of, you know, having art books and having extended universe stuff. Uh, in fact, like one of the major things with Star Wars is there was this book that just came out called uh, A Certain Point of View or something like that, which is like 40 stories about bit characters from the Star Wars universe who turn up in a scene in the movies and then like you never know anything about them. Okay. Were they? Were they new or like reprints of stuff from the 90s? No, no, no. Brand new. Oh, brand wow. New. Yeah. And like the bartender in uh, Maz Eisley or uh, the, the trash compactor monster, like Tom said. That's the place, I think, where you can put that material without it bogging down the main story. And like if they ever wanted to do an additional title for Extremity where here or a special or something, it's like, here's all the details about the world. Fine. But I, I do appreciate that they didn't have Chris Claremont write like 800 word bubbles explaining the entire nature of the world. We don't need it. Yeah. We really don't. Yeah. Going, going back to uh, Black Hammer, they're doing the, the, the spin-off of Sherlock Frankenstein and his Injustice League or whatever it's called. And, um, the Legion, Legion of, of Evil. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm I'm kind of actually glad they're doing that because I I like the character concept of like this zombie Lex Luthor that um it's like a Savannah Lex Luthor mashup that, that just happens to be undead and whatever and um I think you can tell some pretty funny stories with um with that character so I'm I'm looking forward to see what that little mini series does I might check that one out but I think that that kind of stuff counts to the strength of the main source material. Like, no one would care about all the characters in Jabba's palace if Star Wars wasn't fun or interesting. Yeah. And if they had tried to cram that into the movie, it would have been, like, Dune. Like, why do we need all this stuff now? I don't understand what's happening. So, here's a bit of a surprise, both to me, to you, I'm sure, and to our listeners. Uh, my best pick for ongoing is a DC title. It's uh, Super Sons by Peter J. Tomasi and Jorge Jimenez. Look... Rebirth as a whole failed to sell me on pretty much anything. There was not a single title where I picked it up on Rebirth and it was like, you know what? I'll keep going with this. Except for this one. Part of the problem is that I have found, this is going to be heresy, I think. I have found most versions of Damian Wayne to be absolutely intolerable. Like, I don't care about this kid. I don't care if he's dead or alive or somewhere in the middle. Just, I don't need it. I really don't. But Tomasi came out of the freaking woodwork here and teamed him up with John Kent, who is Superman's son and a character that I know literally nothing about besides the fact that he exists. I know there's some kind of weird-ass doomsday clock Dr. Manhattan Jeff Johns bullshit behind all of it. I do not care. Because for Tomasi's purposes on this book specifically, he's just this adorable Moppet kid who frustrates this goth emo hyper Batman Damian Wayne. And I love that dynamic so much. He's just this good kid who wants to help people and Damian cannot deal with that on any level. And the sniping between them is so funny. Like, they, they are constantly poking at each other and bringing out, I think, the best aspects of each other. And on paper, it seems so ridiculous because we're talking about Super Sons. Like, what is this? This is Batman Jr. and Superman Jr. like they used to do back in the Silver Age, right? Where they were literally like carbon copies of their parents down to their hairstyles. 
And I don't know how Tomasi did this, but it is so good. And I'm still with it. In fact, I am enjoying it so much that I broke sort of my golden rule because this book is heading into a crossover and I don't care. I'm not going to read the crossover. I am sticking with this book anyway. Oh, wow. You're, you're, you're breaking your rule of once it enters crossover, you dump. Yeah. It's a level of, of humor that does not exist in the DCU. I can't find it anywhere else. I can't find any other book that lets its characters banter the way that Damien and John do and go up against these credible threats and have all of these amazing adventures while still technically being, you know, Damien is on the Teen Titans and John is having his whole Mr. Oz or whatever the hell's going on over there with the, the action titles and maybe he does exist and maybe he doesn't exist. The book manages to ignore all of that while still keeping these two characters playing off each other and it is it is so well done i don't know the last time i saw a team up this good was original blue beetle and booster gold way back in the day and for that i'm willing to stick around to an extent if it ends up being two crossovers then i'm like look you pushed it too far introducing the third character in the book dr manhattan jr not on my watch your step away from watchman babies <laughs> oh no I've read the first eight issues after your recommendation, and I think it's a very good characters and character intuition in search of a better title, because I like the characters, I like when they interact, the actual story so far have been sort of, kind of, like there was this family of super people, and there was this abusive kid who was controlling them, and then there's something with the... Yeah, and see, here's I've read it not so long ago, and in one go, like, not even, oh, I'm waiting a month between issues, and I like the characters, but the actual story of it was, eh. The plotting of, of and the villain was just, like, sort of meh. I, I liked it better when they were talking to Luthor, actually. Oh, my God, Damien and Luthor. <laughs> just remembering it, give me the giggles. I get that, but I think also at the same time, there's sort of a tacit acknowledgement here that we're not here for the villains. We're not here for the big plots. That's not going to happen in this book, right? By its own admission, this is like a, a C-level title in terms of its significance. I don't, it doesn't even tie into well, what's the big Batman crossover now? Metal days, metal night, metal, metal, right? Heavy metal. Um, in which Batman just shows up with like enormous breasts and, and a giant gun. But, um. I wish, I wish, he- Sean, do not heavy, tease me. Can you imagine just like Christian Bell being like, heavy metal, fact two? Uh, but no, we're not gonna go there. So, um, yeah, that's my pick. Uh, next category. Who's up for it? Me? Is it my turn? I have nothing for the next one, so. Okay. So yeah, Sean, introduce. All right. So the Launchpad McQuack Award for Best Pilot, by which we mean the best number one. And I am giving this to Curse Words Number One by Charles Soleil and Ryan Brown uh, from Image, even though it technically came out in December 2016. I'm still going to allow it. And the thing is that Image has put out a lot of distinct number ones this year, as they have for quite a few years. But something about Curse Words specifically caught me by surprise. Um... You know, we have talked so many times about Charles Soleil's infinite capabilities of producing scripts. I don't, I still don't know how he does it. Maybe he is a wizard as well. But this one, in terms of its tone, was so different from the other stuff that he's done. Like, this is 
a dark comedy about a wizard from another world who comes to Earth and has a talking koala assistant and is being chased by an evil sorcerer named Syzygy, which is sounds like a soft drink. I, I mean, and maybe maybe intentionally so. And having these insane acid trip battles in the middle of like outer space, and it ends with one hell of a cliffhanger. And as number ones go, you know, that was the sort of intro where I got to the end of the first issue and I'm like, Charles Soleil would have to work very, very hard to get me to not come back on the strength of that first issue. I really wish IDW's uh, new DuckTales series that they've launched earlier this year would have been better so I could actually put Launchpad McQuack in the Launchpad McQuack <laughs> Awards. Alas! It's merely average. Well, they, they reprint the old, uh, you know, Donald Duck stories, but they have a new one based on the design from the show. So you have a comic based on the show, based on a comic, which is, as we know, is great. You all remember X-Men Avengers, everybody's favorite X-Men title. Mm-hmm. Actually, I'm saying it mockingly, but the Batman Avengers book was the best Batman series of the 90s. Yeah, you, you said that a couple... They're actually reprinting that. I saw that on, like, the upcoming releases or something like that. They should. Yeah, and they're better than most Batman comics. So uh, I'm wrong. I was cynical and I apologize. Anyway, my actual best uh, first issue is, I'm hoping I'm pronouncing it rhyme, right, uh, Kayin and Abne Afro Space Adventure number one from uh, Juniba and Kinan Korgenay. And it's uh, self-published only via the internet. Like you, you need to download from Gumroad or something like that if you want it for like a dollar. A series about two, I think the other brothers or cousin, they're the last two survivors of their tribe, which is like a futuristic tribe. And they're the last two survivors after evil space pirates killed everybody else. And now they're adults and they have all the remaining super weapons that their people had. And they take up all sorts of like dirty jobs as mercenaries to gather enough money and influence to eventually, hopefully take revenge on what has been done to them. Uh, there, there's only been two issues so far. And uh, the reason I picked issue number one, even though it has several faults, is that it looks like nothing else. Because I've talked about Extremity before. Extremity is a very good-looking book that operates within like a framework and tropes and design sense that is well-known to us. It's like I said, oh, it's Studio Ghibli and meets Mad Max, right? And and you immediately know what I'm talking about. Keon and Abene comes from the tradition of Futurism, which is a tradition, but A, not in the West, and B, as far as I know, not in comics. Like, you don't have anything that looks like this. I just looked at the pages, and I'm... Like, Google it if you want. It's, uh, well, if you can Google it from how I'm saying, Cayenne and Abene. It <laughs> looks K-A-Y-I-N... A-B-A-N-E-Y. I. Anyway, and it just looks so different. And it catches you from the first page, like the freshness of it all. And just being new is not enough. Uh, Juni Ba, uh, the writer-artist, is terrific. Like, it's, it's like, it makes me angry that he's so young and this is like his first major work as far as I know. And he's just so freaking good. Like, they have this amazing action scene where uh, one of our heroes drops, drops from his spaceship into, like, his totem mask thing, which turns into, like, a big, like, human-sized armor, and he just, like, starts slaughtering guys. 
and it's just so well designed and so like so unlike anything else. And there 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 are the problems of the first issue of it's sort unlike extremity it does over explain itself and the characters do tend to say like like were their feelings under sleeve oh I'm doing this because of this and uh, are we are are we in trouble of becoming like the people who killed our tribe because we too are are now dangerous mercenaries which is yeah a bit too much but it it does do the job of being the best first issue by immediately making me want to read the next thing those people do and I've read I just I've read issue two today just came out and it is like a major improvement so therefore issue three would be even better and by issue five I don't know they will rule all of comics sphere for <laughs> um, I really really want somebody like image or or well no not image because image only take people who are already famous but somebody like boom or aftershock or black mask to like take those guys and take the comics they already did and print it and say this could be the next big thing this should be the next big thing yeah so i i googled it and yeah i the art style reminds me a little bit of mike mcnola but as far as there, there is there is of that uh, but, but the design sense. oh no yeah no, the design sense no i've not seen anything like this anything like this in comics yeah so you can get the first issue for like a buck online and it's well worth it See, this is why we need the smorgasbord, because how else would me, or I, or <laughs> have found out about this? Sometimes we even amaze ourselves. You say we need the smorgasbord on the left episode, well. so it's, it's, like, it's like that Superman story, like, must there be a Superman? And the readers are saying, well, there's going to be a next issue, so the answer is probably yes. Okay, but no, like, I've started reading so many good series because of your guys' podcast that I, I cannot think Aww. Of. We're happy to help. And also, uh, to our listeners, you know, if you're interested in finding these gems, hey, 75 episodes are not going anywhere. Go ahead and listen. So who's up for the next category? Okay. Uh, I'm going to do it. I'm going to make I am going to make you <laughs> You're going to force it. me. You're going to force me to it. Uh, the Chief Zdarsky Award for Best Sex Scene in Comics. Yes. Max, I'm going to insist that you start this. Okay, um, I had to really think about this one, because I haven't been reading too many comics with sex scenes in it. Recently, I would say there's something, there's stuff from, uh, my favorite thing is monsters, but none of those are things I want to bring up, because they're all, like, <laughs> heartbreaking and they gut punches, and it's like, oh, God. Um, so I dug back a little deeper, and um, I, there's a scene in Sex Criminals, sometime, I believe, from the fourth arc, I cannot remember the exact issue, but it's between Kegelface and the psychiatrist. Yes. When he's performing cunnilingus on her and she stops time and he's just kind of like stuck there. And they, and, uh, her and the, uh, the, the sex police like search through his, uh, his office because they're, they're at his office. And, um, that was always, uh, a pretty memorable, that, that we, at least from that arc, that was a pretty memorable, um, sexcapade, I suppose. Um, Definitely. So Chip Zdarsky has won the Chip Zdarsky Award. <laughs> yes, of, co- of, of course, of course. Uh, also, a little random factoid, I had a letter published in an issue of that comic this year. I'm not going to tell you which one. Oh my god, now I have to go back and read those issues. Well, is, is, it, is it under your name, or is it under like a pen name? Do I need to guess, like, is this Max, or is it just Max? I'm, I'm not going to tell you, but you'll, it, <laughs> it should be pretty obvious when you read it. Now that okay. you know. Okay. All right. Well, 
while I was drinking beer and watching bad movies and listening to my favorite <laughs> fucking board, dear sex girls, I never believe this thing will happen to me. I'm gonna pick up next, and thanks to the magic of reprints, I'm gonna go with small favors. Uh, Colin Coover's long out of print classic, which, as we discussed earlier this year, just got a new nice hardcover collection thanks to Oni Press and their sub imprint Limerick, I believe. Limerick. And it's, well, the best sex scene. It's the, the, like, the book is a sex scene. Like, it's a very athletic book. And there is a lot of plot. There are just two ladies, and they really love each other. One of them can shrink herself and change size. And then there are three ladies, and then there are four ladies. There are no dudes involved in any way, shape, or form in this book. And it's very fun. And my face is red. <laughs> so, I'm cheating a little bit on this one. Uh, I went cheated. With... Tom had a reprint. <laughs> it's not a cheat. Like, this book was out of print forever. Own it, for Tom. Like 10 years. <laughs> so was Doom Patrol, but you didn't have me going, but you didn't see me voting for that. <laughs> so, my pick was Braga and Tizzy from Rat Queens number 5. This is the reboot, volume 2. Uh, and the reason that it's a bit of a cheat is because it's not the sex scene that you see, but rather the aftermath of it. And the way that we go through the scene is it's Braga who has been caught in this mirror of regrets. So she's remembering a one night stand that she had with her teammate, Tizzy. And it could have been more. It looked like it was building towards some kind of relationship between them. And Braga backed down because she thought it would complicate the team dynamic. And what adds sort of the tragic dimension to it is that you know at this point that half their team got wiped out anyway. So she ended that relationship for nothing. And it really is just sort of this poignant scene of the two of them sitting naked in bed and talking and, and joking with each other, while at the same time she's aware of the fact that in the past, right, this is what she did. She was about to break up with her. Uh, and it's just really this sort of sad and melancholic scene uh, in a book that tends to aim towards the lighter end of the spectrum most of the time. Okay. So the next award, Max, you taking this one? Sure. This is the Fetch is Not Going to Happen award for most excessive hype. Um, I have a tie, I would, I would say, but because I make my own rules. Um, I have a tie between Secret Empire and Doomsday Clock. For Secret uh, Empire, it's just the entire lead up to it. From the Hail Hydra of last year and the, oh no, it's the real cap. It's not a clone or a mind control or a cosmic cube. It totally was a cosmic cube. And, um, just to the actual, the fact that Marvel kind of had this whole promotion, like, plan of, like, having, like, the Hydra attire and apparel for, like, stores and, um, how things went in America politically since then. Yep. And um, it's like it's it's one of those. Yeah, it was a terrible idea. But to be a little fair to Marvel, and that's the only time I'll be a little fair to Marvel. It's oh, we didn't know actual Nazis would be a thing. Yeah, I mean, who would have thought? Who would have thought? I just have this mental image of like Joe Casada and Axel Alonso as soon as they found out looking at each other and being like, uh-oh, we're in trouble. Something's come around and it bursts our bubble. <laughs> You're in trouble. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, um, probably could not have seen that coming, but I'm with you on that. Well, no, no one did. No one, believe me, no, no one did. And uh, as far as Doomsday Clock goes, I don't need to see Watchmen with main DC people. I don't need a Rorschach running around New York or Gotham City or, or wherever the hell he's going to end up after this is done with, if that's what it's going to be, depending on sales, who knows. Just no, no more Watchmen stuff. That's my that's my Scarlet Witch thing. No more Watchmen. It's Jeff Jones. He's he's as talented as Ellen Moore's lower parts of the beard, like one of the hairs of the beard, like one of the toes, maybe. There is no alternate Earth that Grant Morrison can dream up in which Jeff Johns is anywhere near Alan Moore's level. Grant Morrison constructs multiverses while he's having cereal in the morning, and he can't imagine that, so. Yeah, and especially not 1986, Alan No. Like, this is ridiculous. No, thank you. And then, and then earlier this week, there was like, could, uh, Doomsday Clock be tied into multiversity? I'm like, no, 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 <laughs> don't, no, no. I mean, it could. The question they mean to ask is, should it? And to which the, the answer, answer is no. no. So it's just like, I remember that was like the big reveal at the end of uh, Rebirth number one, which came out, was it last April or something like that? And I was just like, ugh, no, no. Definitely. And people like it, therefore validating my belief that people are trash. Yeah. I mean, look. No, 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 but, but these are people who were born long after 1986. Let's be real. People born before it are also, are also trash. I mean, we're, we're, I'm not going to get any. I'm not going to get any more into the political landscape of what's going on right now. But yeah. And, oh yeah. And okay, like Discovery, I did not read the first issue, you know, and I still, I also give it this award, and I don't need to because really, Jeff Johns and Gary Frank on their best day, on their bestest day ever, birthday boys are not are not Ellen Moore and Dave Gibbons no. on their single worst day ever. And I am including Lost Girls there, and because at least that was interesting. You know what? It's like, and when you think about it, even if Ellen Moore and Gibbons, if the two of them had drawn a panel at the very end of the last issue of Watchmen with a big neon sign saying, new writers apply here with an arrow pointing down towards to be continued, even then... Still unacceptable. And yet, for all of that, I actually gave the most excessive hype award to someone else. Because I need someone to explain to me why Jean Grey coming back from the dead is a deal. I'm not even saying big deal. I'm saying any kind of deal. Old Jean Grey, Sean. Because there's already one running around. Who can't... No, but, like, we're talking about a character who... Let's set aside the specific context. This is someone who's famous for dying and coming back. And now it's a big deal that she's coming back. I'm confused. Um, uh, cynically, I could say it's because she's the star of the next movie. But I don't... I don't know. I, I haven't cared about X-Men in a long time. Yeah, Marvel is also trying to sell us on Wolverine coming back as a big deal. There are three of him right now. There's like Kid Wolverine, there's all new Wolverine, and there's Old Man Logan, who's just Wolverine with like white sideburns. That's the only difference. And even back in the early like 2000s when they killed characters and brought them back, we were already cynical enough. But nowadays they kill them, they bring them back, but in the middle they have the alternate versions who stay. So, 
they're coming back and you have like four Wolverines now. Yeah, Wolverine has not been yeah, gone like long only, enough to miss him. Only Wolverine right now is a better book than any re- ongoing Wolverine title has been for a long while, I'd say. And she's a better character right now, so like, he can stay dead. I don't care. We had 40 years of this guy stabbing and bubbing his way. <laughs> bubbing his way. I, I'm open for a new one. And you know they're going to shove her into the drawer as soon as he comes back. Laura who? I find people like the return of Mary Ellen, the lesson of which was old characters can retire and die and new characters can fill their place and it's okay. Everybody liked that story. What happened to that sentiment? Jeff Johns. Jeff, yeah, what, speaking of what do you think Jeff Johns had to say to Morrison for him to do that? Damned if I know. I'm guessing blackmail and material. And it's the crazy thing that for a while Jeff Johns was disguised because he wrote Stars and Stripes, which was all about, oh, old hero retires new young female character comes in and takes his place and that's great and then he became this man guy DC suddenly oh let's bring the guys that I've read yeah that's child. like because nobody yeah. else deserves to have a childhood give it a couple of years and then the, the the kids who grew up with Kyle Rayner and Wally West are gonna assert themselves at the company and then it's just gonna be this constant ping-ponging back Bart Allen's gonna be back at some point I'm sure yeah well we've got two Wally Wests right now last I checked say what yeah right what yeah, after Rebirth, they have two Wally West. What are you talking about, Max? Original Wally West, and then the the new Wally West that they, you know, made an African-American. I think they retconned it that they're, like, cousins or something like that, or they're somehow related. They're both named after their uncle or something, or so... Zenu, save me. But no, that was, like, very, very early on in, um, like, the Rebirth things, that, that there were gonna be both of them. <laughs> they're getting rid of the African-American one? No, 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 they're both around. Unless I don't know something, but... Oh, boy. Wow. Okay. Well, that's a big honking neon sign for me to stay away from the Flash. Um, well, it's been going on for like a year, so I suppose you, you haven't missed much then. But, know, I mean, I Rebirth was all like, hey, we're bringing back all that stuff we got rid of from New 52 that people were mad about. We're going to give Green Arrow back his beard. Oh, good. He was missing that. <laughs> oh, Diana Lance is back? I don't know. I've missed her, that so... That was a weird joke. I'm sorry. So, but yeah, so this whole thing with Jean Grey, it feels almost symptomatic of like what's going on in the mainstream where the best idea that you can get people excited about is somebody coming back from the dead. And even then, like Tom pointed out, she technically hasn't been gone because there was this other character who was her who has been running around for the last couple of years anyway. So, you know, what? what is the point here? If it had been another high-profile ex-woman who had been gone for a while, like if it had been Storm, if it had been, I don't know, someone on that level, I could understand sort of making a big deal about the fact that she's coming back, but Jean Grey? Well, they've already pulled that trick with a lot of the people, like when they shot Kitty Pride in the space and a bullet or whatever it was. That, that we <laughs> yep. But Whedon brought back Colossus, so I can't fault him too much. It was a magic bullet, Max. A magic metal bullet. Yes. Okay, uh, the next one, is it the John Carter Award or the Chester Bennington Memorial? Let's go with Chester Bennington, because this was a... Max, this was your category. Yeah, yeah. So, go the for Chester it. Bennington Memorial Award for most lamented cancellation, not necessarily restricted to 2017. So, earlier this week, actually, or today, actually, I think, according to my news feed, Grant Morrison had a little interview with some people online, stating explicitly that he had plans to write 
Damien and Dick Grayson, Batman and Robin, for five years. Which he had hinted at at the very, very end of Batman Inc. right before Damien dies. And um, I really, really loved that 16-issue series. It was fun to see, like, the cheery, smiley Batman and, like, the grim, like, no-nonsense Robin and whatnot. And um, I thought that Morris came up with some pretty interesting new villains for that, as far as Professor Pig and Flamingo and um, making Red Hood an actual villain, because Morrison doesn't like the anti-hero, anti-villain thing. You're either, like, fully good or fully evil, which doesn't always work, but um, I give him props for trying, because he was, Red Hood was just skating the, the line for a number of years until that happened. Plus, you know, I like me some quietly, Frank Quietly Art and Fraser Irving, and uh, it was just... A very, very solid, very, very solid 16 issues, and I would have liked to see where that series could have gone had it had room to breathe, because it felt very, very constrained of, uh, like, I want to do these things, but I only have these many issues before I have to usher Bruce Wayne back. I feel like it was, both its creation and its cancellation felt like DC reacting to things, like, on impulse. And just greenlighting things, and then if, if it didn't work out in, in five or six issues, quickly, let's go do something else in the meantime. And, you know, I believe Morrison that he had plans, because Morrison is exactly the type of writer who who knows where he's going. He usually has a plan. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it, it was hard for me to believe. I mean, I wasn't reading uh, uh, Batman Inc. at the time, but I find it very easy to believe that he could have done five years of that in the blink of an eye. Yeah, it's more of just like, like, you know, wanting to see that that dynamic as the opposite of the Batman-Robin relationship or their personalities, and, um, you know, I just, I thought it would I thought it would have been fun. But I'm not, we got a little bit of it in Batman Inc. still, though, but um, that got all fuddly because of timing and junk. Yeah. Tom? Um, Island that has gone for us this year. Uh, we, we sort of knew that it happened already last year when, you know, the issues started to come on erratically and it became clear that from looking at the sales chart that not a lot of people were digging that thing, but I still, like, I'm sad it's gone because it was nice to me that a company as big as Image, and right now Image is the mainstream in many ways more so than Marvel and DC. Oh, yeah. Amen. Uh, Big three. Could, could afford to put out a title that showcases not only people we've heard of before but completely new voices and the pervert from uh, michelle perez and remy boydell which was a heartbreaking like series of shorts and we really need more of this and i i talked to the writer uh, a few months before and she told me that they were going to print a collection of all the strips plus some that they've planned but i haven't heard anything about it since and it's not in the previews so I really hope it'll come up because people need to read those stories. But um, if not, I guess you can find them on Comixology. But really, it's it's a shame because Image, one of the problems with Image is that for all of them saying like we're an indie company, technically we're a creator-owned company, you kind of have to be a big name to get a title at Image. You can't be the new guy and, and jump on their publicity bandwagon. You You have to already have quote-unquote, proven yourself via Marvel and DC and Boom or whatever. 
it's a place for your Ed Boo Bakers and your Sean Phillipses and your and your BKVs. And it's not a place if I guess if Michelle Perez just came to them and saying, I want to publish this, they probably either wouldn't go for it or would tell her, oh, you need to pay a lot of money for us to print this. I sort of see the advantage in it in that the advantage of you have to have a certain cash in the industry before publishing an image also means that the standards go up, right? There's less chance of someone who's not necessarily proven themselves with audience appeal. But at the same time, here I am also having given that same award to Island because Image is still publishing anthologies. But I think based on, on their current output, the model seems to be shifting more towards things like Sun Bakery or Packless, where it's shorter works from singular authors. There's nothing wrong with that. I'm all for it. I'm reading Sun Bakery. I'm enjoying it. But I don't think that Image have enough platforms for works by unknown talents. And they should, because there was a time when nobody knew who Brandon Graham was. And if he hadn't been given the opportunity to prove himself, if he had not been able to put his work out there for people to appreciate, no one would know who he was today. Image wouldn't have gotten profit. They wouldn't have gotten a whole bunch of talent that came in because of him. So I think they, they absolutely need that space to, to feature new talent, new writers, new artists, even the furry porn. Let them have it too. Different strokes for different folks. Pervert was great. The fair, well, well, no, the pervert was porn. It was like fairy conversations about sex. I always forget the name of the gay animal, uh, what was it? I don't know. There was an issue where it was dedicated to stories about a bunch of like animal, anthropomorphized animals going to a gay pride parade. I, I know which issue you're talking about. I haven't read it, but I'm, I know what you're talking about. And I mean, that is something that in 800,000 years you would not see at Image proper. And yet Island did it. And I feel like even though it didn't speak to me, I'm like, you know what? This thing is valuable. It's good to have it around, you know, have different kinds of things. And Island was... You're saying that now, but when Kill or Be Killed is over, we get an announcement, oh, the next Brubaker and Phillips production is gay anthropomorphic animal porn, obviously. I would laugh my ass off and instantly subscribe to all issues. But <laughs> yeah, it, it's just really like Island was, I think, Image's biggest... Like, if the axe did come down because Image demanded that this book end because it wasn't profitable, that was such a misstep for them. No, no, no. As as far as I know, it's because the creators weren't making enough money to justify it. Anyway. Okay. Because the Image model is basically, if you make money, you make all of the money. Like, you get about 90% of the profits of the book or something. But if the book doesn't sell enough, well, if it loses money, you lose money. And Brandon Graham, obviously, you know, he's not a millionaire. He can't afford to pay all those alternative cartoonists from his own pocket to just produce stuff forever, yeah, I guess. High risk, high reward. Yeah. And I don't know that there's anything wrong with that system per se, especially compared to what goes on in the other companies, you know. But at the same time, the fact that Image sort of fell between the cracks here is just, I don't know, it's unfortunate. I feel like we could have had another 20 issues of Island with all kinds of outlandish, crazy stuff going on over there. And things that you just didn't see anywhere else. And image, you know, that, that is already a strength of image that they 
at the moment they are publishing titles that DC and Marvel with, you know, even with Vertigo and Icon and whatever imprints they set up to allow it would never in a million years publish something like Extremity. I feel like Vertigo is kind of just like limping along, like it dying is. of consumption, being like, don't forget about me. You'll never cancel me because you need an imprint to print Sandman under. Remember Hellblazer? It started with me. Remember my World Fantasy Award. <laughs> You're both giving Vertigo some really different voices, and it confuses <laughs> me. Like, if one of you was Vertigo and if one of you was Wildstorm, that would be a thing. No, the other one would be it's Young Animals, right? The uh... well, next year they're gonna do the big uh, Young Animal and Vertigo crossover. Oh phase. god, it's, it's gonna be a push, I guess. The more I hear about stuff coming out of Young Animal, basically, just like it's just Vertigo with a new coat of paint. Yeah, I'm okay with it. I'm still waiting again, and I'll repeat this joke forever for Young Sandman and the Teen Titans because at a certain point, you know, they gonna they gonna they gonna need more more of that Sandman money, and they're gonna just go for it. There was an issue of um, Morrison's JLA where Daniel showed up. Yeah, yeah, and, uh, and he was now in metal. Every now and then, yeah. you hear some you hear some uh, rumblings about abs- new Absolute editions or omnibus editions of. Sandman and, and stuff, so... Look, that castle is not gonna buy itself <laughs> okay? I don't know, it's how American Gods was doing, and the man can do no wrong. He really can. Um, he is the kindest human being I've ever met. Uh, he's amazing. I actually have a story about him. Uh, a mutual friend of ours was running a crowdfunding campaign for a publisher to translate books from uh, English to Hebrew, and he donated a book for like a, a stretch goal mm-hmm. and it sold out immediately oh cool oh they had like uh, uh how do you say it um they had like a public auction on that book and he said and i was in that ca- i was looking at that campaign and they were missing for like two thousand shekels or something like 500 600 dollars and this book was like a desperate manner and you could see like oh okay 100 shekels 200 shekels 400 shekels, 500, and it ended at like over 2,000 or something ridiculous. Like oh, that yeah. For like a signed, dedicated edition. So Neil Gaiman basically saved this young publisher. There's more to that story, by the way, because then he donated a second book. So he really is amazing. Yeah. And this book is from the lost library of dream that hasn't yes. been published and will never I've seen be- a picture of his library. It looks like the, the coziest place <laughs> you've ever seen. I'm getting, my, I'm getting my own library together in my house, so it's... It's a work in progress. Oh, you'll get there. You're yeah. gonna have like that, but you're gonna have to play like the masterpiece theater every time you come into the room. It's gonna be like you know. Da, 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 da. <laughs> <laughs> I have an honorable mention for lamenting cancellation. Next wave. Oh yeah, that that's a late. <laughs> that's been canceled twelve years ago. Oh, you're right, but but it was so much fun. <laughs> so much. Fun. It was. You guys remember when Warren Ellis used to have a sense of humor? Yeah, he still does sometimes, yeah. but. I still does. Anyway, yeah. so, uh, speaking of doing wrong, it is time for the John Carter Award for Biggest Flop of 2017. And who else could I give this to but the Inhumans, who fail and fail and fail again in all ways, in all media? It's actually kind of impressive. <laughs> the show came out this year, right? In humans, eight episodes. Straight out of the gate and onto the cliff that was <laughs> outside of that gate. A biz 
Mo. Like, I don't know. I mean, okay, well, actually, I do know how it turned out that bad. But when you think about Marvel TV, you know, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. is not super popular. But people did not dogpile it the way they did in humans, which was just Medusa's power is her hair. So let's shave her head in episode two. And that's the end of it. Well, they had this really strange decision to take this show, which was cheap, which was made at like a buck fifty and screened on IMAX, like the two pilot episodes. Why would you? That's not because IMAX heightens all of those flows. That's a thing that you should hide. Like, oh, we're only going to show this. We're only going to screen this TV show on like 20 year old TVs. And you and you were saying, oh, the effects are pretty good. You know, the, it's kind of grainy, but you know, from what I can see, it looks perfectly okay. And I mean, real talk. You know, if we set aside all the nonsense marketing bullshit, we know that why Marvel pushed the Inhuman so hard. But what amazes me is the fact that you know they pushed and they pushed and they pushed and they tried everything in the books. They tried to market the show a certain way, and nothing worked. Not one thing, really. Like, even the connections they tried to retroactively forge with characters who turned out to be popular and be like, oh, they're actually in humans. Nobody cared. Yeah. Captain America was actually given the inhuman serum when he was, like, a young boy or something. Still don't care. Yep. I, I think the, the main, like, the main cause of the failure is even people who aren't diehard comics saw it for what it was. Like, the easiest way to explain, like, who are the humans, who are the inhumans, it's like, well, it's like X-Men, but in space. And people are like, wait, what? So, it was painfully obvious what was going on, and between the debut of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and Inhumans, it was, what, four or five years? So, by that point, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. had already come and almost gone, like, People are like lamenting, like, oh my gosh, that show is still on. So I feel like they've become much more critical. I mean, you, you can, you can, you can add the counter argument, like, oh, well, they don't know the characters. I'm like, well, Guardians of the Galaxy succeeded, but it's like, but that's because you had stars in that movie and, um, you had a raccoon who swears. Yeah, even if you take, like, the Guardians out of the equation as, like, a film property, like, look at the CW shows. They have been rolling on for what? The Arrowverse, right, has been rolling on for, what, four or five seasons now? Nobody knew those. Who the hell knew who Green Arrow was, like, outside the the, the TV show, right? And all of a sudden, they got this, this actor who was not particularly good, but kept the show running for five years, and then they had The Flash, and then Legends of Tomorrow, and then uh, Supergirl, right? And all of these shows seem to be doing a hell of a lot better than the Inhumans with characters who, you know, if we're being completely honest, DC is not pushing. Like, they're letting the CW just take these properties and maintain them. They're the B-list. People know The Flash. People know Green Arrow. I mean, they've been in various media throughout the years. But they're like, okay, you're not Batman. You're not Superman. Go at it. I will say, though, that the actual Inhumans comics, uh, from what I've read this year, are better because they had a miniseries by Christopher Priest, and they had they thrown in L. Ewing and Saladin Ahmad and Christian Ward on the ongoing, so the level is up, but at this point, the franchise as is, if you're looking for high-quality comics, is ruined, like it's poison. I'm pretty sure that even if you told me right now, oh, Grant Morrison and Frank Whitey and teaming up on the Inhumans book, I would have to think like twice before. I'm like, 
Nah, do I really want? I would well, were were he not passed, I would want um Mobius to do uh an Inhuman. Ooh, that would be cool. yeah. But I think that's the thing. Like the time to get Grant Morrison or Mobius was two, three, four years ago when they started this whole push to begin with. The fact that they again, I have nothing against Charles Soleil. He was maybe not the person who needed to launch the Inhumans as this kind of new brand. And then the TV show, who was the showrunner? It was uh, Scott Buck, wasn't it? Or Jeff Buck, I forget his name. Uh, whoever it was, it was just like, this started out as a movie, then it became an eight-episode series that nobody wanted, and they got the showrunner from Iron Fist, which we all loved so much. <laughs> as it turns out, the Buck does stop here, and goes nowhere. And goes right off a cliff. <laughs> Max, uh, what's what's your choice? What's your uh... well? I had Inhumans written down just because of, of my multiple things I've written down. Um, I kind of want to go Defenders, the TV series. Mm. Oh, but yeah, I also yeah. want to say Justice League, the movie. Oh yeah. So we'll start with one I've, I I have seen. So Defenders, it came into the gate on uneasy footing because of how Iron Fist was. Like, I still haven't watched Iron Fist. I've been told I don't need to watch Iron Fist, and that's okay. I, I didn't need to watch Iron Fist to understand what the hell was going on in Defenders. Um, but, I, you know, it was interesting to... It was hopefully interesting to see, like, how these characters would all interact together. But there was so little interaction in the group other than a couple scenes that you didn't really care like they're like everyone has to have their own little mystery adventure they have to go on that they'll sometimes pair up and then no one gets along and blah 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 um iron fist played way too heavily into the plot where it felt like jessica jones and luke cage didn't really have to do anything other than just like stand around and punch through walls a couple times yep and the fact that they wasted sigourney weaver what a waste of, like, an amazing actress. Yeah. Um, they did have a couple of scenes that used music well, uh, with Run the Jewels and the Wu-Tang Clan. Um, when you first see the group fight at the beginning, or when they go to the, the, the headquarters and then at the very, very end. Um, which, that's always, like, a strong point of bringing in Luke Cage so you can do some cool things with music, I think. Or they, they've done cool things with music with him. But, yeah, just... I don't know. It was, it had a lot of promise, but it just, I wasn't really expecting much. I'm, I am glad though. It was only eight episodes because that's been my biggest critique of the Marvel Netflix series. Is after Daredevil season one, they've all been way too long, and they all had like that mid-season slump. Yep, around like seven, seven or eight, they're like, okay, now it's backstory time, and it's like, no, just progress the plot, progress the plot. Yeah. Why are we introducing a B plot in episode eight? We're already, like, halfway through the show. Come on. But yeah, my, my second one is Justice League. I mean, the fact that it's been out now for four or five weeks or however many weeks it's been out, and I have yet to actually go see it to get the, to get the gumption to go up and be like, okay, yeah, I'm going to go see this. It's just like, uh, I mean. <laughs> well, I don't see, see, I don't get why people are complaining. Uh, Justice League is a perfectly fine film. I don't understand why they waited till 2017 to 
uh, put out from the mothballs. This obviously a 1998 movie, but for like for the late 90s, it's those are pretty oh no, not, Tom, no. What? Not the Justice League TV movie with the fat John Jones. <laughs> no, 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 no. I am talking about the thing that was on cinema right now with like Ben Affleck and uh, and Gal Gadot. And Henry Cavill CGI face. Oh my God, that CGI face. Wait, wait. That's like actually from this year. It wasn't just something that people found in the back of a drawer. No. Well, that was filmed in 2017. Are you kidding me? <laughs> They're, they're trying to course correct, but they can only do so much so fast, and there's already talks of, like, shake-ups that's going to be happening at the, at the DC film branch. Like, I saw, again, the talk of, like, John Hamm wants to get back into being Batman, which I know Ben Affleck would love to just bow out of gracefully, but, um... John Hamm, John Hamm is either Professor Pig or is nothing. Ooh, that'd be good. I'm sorry. Yeah. Pig will make you perfect indeed. It's a bad movie, and even Wonder Woman and everybody liked is, like, some mediocre movie as far as I'm concerned, but at least other people liked it. But like the whole DCEU, the DCU extended universe, whatever, it's an amazing that movies can make so much money and still be considered a bust. Like you have to work for it. Well, I think the comparison that they're drawing, and I hate to do it because it, it does sort of introduce the concept of bias, but it's like the comparison they're obviously making is the Avengers. They really did think that the Justice League would make the same amount of money as the Avengers did, especially considering the involvement of Joss Whedon. And it didn't. Like when they say the the output of this movie, the the you know, ticket sales and all that, what it made in the box office was a disappointment. They're referring to the fact that the Avengers made like a billion dollars in its first week and Justice League won't make a billion dollars in total. Justice League, as, as it appears right now, will make less money than Thor Ragnarok worldwide. Yeah. Which is amazing. You have a movie with Batman and Superman and Wonder Woman, and it'll make less money. You know what? Not even Ragnarok. Right now, I, I looked at Box Office Mojo. It hasn't passed Thor the Dark World. Oh, Nobody oh God. The Dark World. Woo! Oh. Nobody likes that movie. Nobody likes it. And... I'm talking about Thor the Dark World. Oh, no, yeah. <laughs> it's not supposed to be... You can't lose money with a Batman movie. That has been the rule. Even even Batman and Robin, which everybody hated, still made money. It's just that the producer looked at it and said, well, nobody likes this version. We'll wait and we'll do it again later. But this is going to be a Batman movie that loses money. That's amazing. DC's worst nightmare. But again, like Defenders, this came in on unstable footing because of BBS. A travesty a movie I just refused to watch a second time, and just like the development hell it went through of like rewrites and uh, Snyder unfortunately having to leave the film, and then it's like we'll bring in Josh Whedon and people being like, I can see what you're doing, trying to do here, DC, and then um, as far as just like tonally how different it appears from like Wonder Woman was a success, people loved that movie. It took my girlfriend and my sister to see it; they both really liked it, and they're not superhero people. But, like, someone, I saw an article online, like, comparing the costumes of the Amazons in Wonder Woman to the yeah. costumes in Justice League, and it's like, uh, yeah, you, you shouldn't have done that. Um, so, I mean, if anything, people like Aquaman now. They do. And I knew that that would happen going into it, because 
you know, when you look at the casting, it's like, I didn't think that Ezra Miller would catch on. He seems to have, you know, charmed some people based on how he played Barry Allen. But I mean, Jason Momoa, unless it's Conan, he tends to play roles where people like him in that role, right? He does a good job. And I think it did create possibly some kind of hype for an Aquaman movie. But then I can't see, like, would the Aquaman movie just be like Justice League? No, because they have the guy who did Fist of the Furious. Recently. Oh, that, yeah, that's the current director. And those movies have been yeah. stupidly successful. True story. So I had not seen the movie. A friend of mine went to see it and doesn't know anything about comics. So he comes back and I'm like, well, long and short of it, what'd you think? And he goes, yeah, well, whatever. It wasn't really good. But, but he was confused by the villain. Now, I hadn't, I didn't know anything about this. I'm like, okay, so the villain was what? Dark side, right? And he's like, no. The villain was a guy called Steppenwolf. And I'm like, you uh, say that again? Steppenwolf. And I'm like, okay, okay, hold on. Hold up. It's like a new guy to so, deep cut. Well, that's the thing. Not so much a deep cut, but I'm like, so you had, you wanted to do a movie, a Justice League movie with a minion of Darkseid, obviously because you want to build up two Darkseid. Okay, I get it. That's fine. That's legit. And you had Calabac, you had Granny Goodness, mm-hmm. you had uh, Godfrey. You had Desad, right? You yep, had Desaad. all of these characters, and you went with Steppenwolf. No, because they didn't even went with Steppenwolf. They went with some generic CGI demon. Steppenwolf looks cool. Like, the Kirby design for Steppenwolf is unique, and it's, like, awesome. And they went with cutscene from World of Warcraft circa... 2007. I mean, I, I know that I'm remembering this right. Steppenwolf is so inconsequential that they killed him off in the opening of a Justice League episode once in the old animated show. The guy with the green, the sword, I'm pretty sure it was yeah. Steppenwolf. Yeah, yeah. And. Oh, yeah. I don't think he died. His ship blew up and then Orion was Steppenwolf like. Steppenwolf is so inconsequential that, like, I know a thing or two about comics. Otherwise, I wouldn't be here. But when they announced who the villain was, I'm like, I don't even know who that is. <laughs> yeah he's dark side's cool uncle and this just goes to show like wb stupidity they knew that wonder woman was like wonder woman at this point was getting rave reviews why not just do the female furies they could have just thrown in like three female villains have granny goodness show up at some point and that could have been like a credible threat on the one also it would have been like instead of having one villain versus like seven heroes you could have multiple bad guys, you know. The most obvious things don't occur to them. And that's why they keep falling over and over again. Granny Goodness can only be on film if Ed Asner does her voice again. Yes! Leave Ed Asner alone. He's like 90. He needs to... That's what dubbing is for, Tom. If it works for Rita Repulsa, it'll work for Granny Goodness. Uh, my pick is uh, Marvel Legacy. Uh, the whole The whole, <laughs> the whole damn which thing. It- because it's such a disaster of what exactly... No, up until now, nobody's really sure what Marvel Legacy is. Because they had a one-shot. And now every, and everything from that one-shot will be determined in the future. And they had a series of number ones, which were character meeting an old version of the character, which was supposed to be this amazing thing, even though most of those characters already met before. Because, oh... It's Jane Foster Thor and regular Thor, but they already met all the time in their own title. And they changed nothing in the terms of the creative team. It's still, oh, it's Jason Aaron doing 
doing Thor. It's uh, Dan Slott doing Spider-Man. It's uh, who's doing Wolverine? Charles Soleil, right? Yeah. doing Wolverine. It's it's still the same thing. Only we made the numbering of Marvel Comics somehow even more confusing. And the results hasn't changed in terms of quality control. Sales are in the tank. Uh, you know, Axel Alonso just lost his job. And I'm pretty sure it's part of that. Probably because of Bendis. I mean, if an editor-in-chief lost, like, a major writer, heads would roll. This whole thing is just... It's amazing how on the ball Marvel could be on, you know, on the movie side in terms of at least audience reception and in terms of comics because Marvel has talented people working for them art writers and artists but they can do nothing good with them because they're mismanaging the whole concept of a fictional universe it's amazing to me yeah you know it was a blatant example of let's go back because it, it's you know again the the most obvious thing not occurring to them they made these changes in the first place because existing characters were not selling, right? It was a sales stunt to say, now we're going to do a Lady Thor. Now we're going to have Laura Kinney be Wolverine. Now we're going to have all of these changes because nobody gave a shit about Wolverine. And then now, like, a year, two years later, suddenly it's like, you know what people really want to see? Wolverine. I mean, it's, it's just a copy of Rebirth. Rebirth was bringing back the classic heroes that people wanted, that, that were displaced for the new hotness for New 52, and um, it didn't go as planned. Well, I dislike Rebirth in terms of the actual comics produced, but you cannot deny that it's a sales success, and the wide audience seems to like New it. 52 did not have a lot of good books, but it, was, it did the sales yeah, success but, that DC needed at the time for its comics. Yeah, but Rebirth still works for the point that two years later... Up until now, they kept the rebirth like tagline over most of their books because people liked it. I didn't like it. Sean didn't like it. You didn't like it. But DC's reading audience did like it. And the Watchmen think Doomsday Clock is a travesty as far as I'm concerned. But it's a travesty that sells a lot of copies. Marvel can't even do well, that. They can't do that anymore. They can't do that anymore. They used to be able to, but it's, it's bitten them in the butt too many times. Yeah. After Civil War II ended with a like, seven-page ad of, like, here's what's coming in the future, and uh, the ridiculousness of Captain America, then, yeah, they can't do that anymore. Am I misremembering, or was Secret Wars not, like, last year? Which was their big universe reboot thing that didn't actually reboot anything. I feel like it was... I feel like it wrapped up early... I don't know. When did Captain America 3 come out? Was that last year? I think that ended the end of 2015 or maybe beginning of 2016 because Civil War 2 came out around the time that Captain America Civil War came out. Right, right. Um, yeah, so like, okay, two years, right? But they had marketed that as this universe-spanning reboot and everything was going to be different and everything ended up being pretty much the same. At least when DC committed to Rebirth, they actually did go and bring back these lost characters. Now, I happen to think personally that that's just a flash in the pan because those old characters did not manage to hold audience interest back then. Otherwise, DC would not have rocked the boat to begin with. You know, why did the new 52 even happen? Because their sales were down. So bringing them back is going to do what exactly? 
yeah, people are going to be happy because they're going to feel like those old stories are canon again and they quote unquote matter. But then, okay, six months down the line, are people still going to be hyped out about the fact that Wally West is white again? I don't know. Well, they made everybody happy by just having two of them. So they went the easy route of we're not going to upset anyone by just having both of them being around and acknowledging each other. They're they're both on separate teams, so there's not it's not like there's two Wally Wests on the. You know what that is? That's like the Miles Morales thing. How because Peter Parker is alive, no one will ever look at Miles Morales and say that's the real Spider Man. Having both of them defeats the purpose in the first place because it's just saying like there's yeah there's a there's a Black Flash but we don't really not that Black Flash the other Black Flash not the guy who's <laughs> like the symbol of death. But here's the difference between between the Flashes and Spider Man is Spider Man doesn't have a Spider Man family. There isn't five other Spider Mans running around. That's just him. Yes, sir. Oh, okay, 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 okay. I mean, I mean. Scarlet Spider, Spider No, no, but I'm saying, like, all the other Spider-Mans don't call themselves Spider-Man. Yeah, that's true. Like, all the Flashes call themselves the Flash, but they're all separated, I don't know. Yeah. No, I see what you're saying. Like, the, in DC's case, it tends to be that they fight over the same mantle, like the same title, the same identity, whereas Marvel was content to have, you know, when Jane Foster becomes Thor, then the guy who used to be Thor starts calling himself Odin's son. So you don't get confused that they're fighting over the same name. Maybe that's part of it. I don't know. I just, I'm with Tom on this. Like, the, the legacy concept, trying to bring back all these characters is like, but you got rid of these characters for a reason. Right. You made the decision back then that these characters were expendable because readers were not interested in their stories. And instead of finding better stories, you're like, you know what? Let's just cash it in and kill them off. Great. You did that. Now what? Yeah. The, the, the legacy aspect of comics is, is its biggest strength and its weakness. Because you're able to have, you know, years spanning stories of, you know, 17 years of Claremont X-Men. But then, at the other hand, it's like starting new from like Batman, like back in two thousand eight. Like, well, I guess I'll start with issue eight sixty two. Even though, like, I don't even buy that anymore because it's like today. I feel like people would just be like, "When is Morrison's first issue coming out?" That's the one. Okay. Yeah, but you don't start like that, though. I mean, I did start like that because I picked up Batman R.I.P. because I'm like, they're killing Batman. Not knowing, or like they were hinting at killing Batman or something like that. And, um, I didn't know about, you know, the concept of comic book death being temporary at best. So I'm like, oh, okay, I, I, I have a little bit of money now. I'm above the age of, you know, I had a job and whatnot. So I'm like, oh, I'll check out these comics. And then I'm like, oh, Grant Morrison, cool. And, uh, you know, I like the crazy things he's doing with Batman of Zero and R and whatnot. So, you know, I've, I've looked for other stuff he wrote and whatnot. I think we need a positive award now. <laughs> We're swimming in negativity. Go for it. Sure. Next up, we have the Borg Award for the best TV and or movie adaptation, because I have one for each. So, coming in for the movie, I think will be no one's surprise, Thor Ragnarok. I saw this last night. I, <laughs> after, after finishing my reading so I could have something to talk about today, I'm like, I'm going to go see Thor, because I haven't seen it yet. And, um... And, Way back when the first trailer came out, 
there's that line like, yes, I know him, we're, we're friends from work or whatever. I'm like, that does not seem to fit at all. But based off of the humor of the rest of that movie, it fits perfectly in the context. This Thor has grown. This Thor has become a little bit more self-aware. He's not immediately tricked by Loki all the times. You know, you see him being like, aha, I got you, Loki. Kate Blanchett, I thought was a great imposing uh, female villain. I can't believe they got away with the crown. Um, yes. Uh, Jeff Goldblum, absolutely amazing. Um, I love the Kirby-esque designs that you see throughout the movie. Yeah, I just, I had a lot of fun. It was fun to see uh, the Hulk as, close thing we'll get to a World War Hulk kind of figure. It's actually a another Thor movie I want to see again. And I would actually put it in some of my highest Marvel movies as far as ones that I enjoyed. I was not expecting it to be nearly as good as it was. Especially because someone I knew told me, like, oh, it's kind of like Guardians of the Galaxy 2, which I was like, I don't know about that. But, um, you know, I just really enjoyed this movie, and uh, I'm looking forward to seeing it again sometime. Yeah, I think what happened was between Thor The Dark World and Thor Ragnarok, Ghostbusters came out, and people suddenly realized that, which Chris is it? Hemsworth. Chris Hemsworth. People suddenly realized that Chris Hemsworth could be funny. Oh yeah, because he was one of the best parts of that of that movie. Yeah, he was just hysterical, and I think they're like, okay, can we apply that to Thor? And it turns out you absolutely could. And in fact, there was a little bit of that back in in Avengers, where it's like, you know, Loki's still my brother. Don't talk badly about him. And then they're like, he just killed a whole bunch of people. And then there's this beat, and Hemsworth is like, he's adopted. Yeah. Well, yeah, and, and they, they play up a lot on that in, in this movie, and um, Taika Waititi, uh, the director, who's also the voice of Korg, um, if you've seen, seen any of his other stuff, he has that, that that style of comedy he brings to it is what makes that movie so good. Like, if they had gone with the tone of the last two, it it wouldn't have been as near, nearly as enjoyable, I think. It would have been all highbrowed and stuffy and would have gone the way of John Carter, probably. It's definitely a good response for all the people that always insist that, you know, all of Marvel movies are alike and you can't see individual directors. And that's an obviously a Taika Waititi movie. And I know it's that because I'm laughing and I don't remember actually laughing at any American, like, comedies over the last five years that are not by Taika Waititi, that are not what we do in the shadows because I'm a bit of a snob when it comes to uh, movie comedies. And as far as I'm concerned, John Apatow has poisoned the field. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like I really I dislike what he did and therefore I dislike all of his followers and that's like comedy right now in movies like it's John Apatow Inc so seeing something like this something that's not afraid to like go for broke and bonkers and do like do fast gags do quick jokes do cuts like do puns do something so stupid like Thor playing with a ball on the window and it bounces him yeah about that came to the face Yes. That's totally like, oh, yeah, they're going to escape now, and they break the glass, but no, like, when it hit him in the... He's something so great. as shameless as the strongest Avenger gag in the in the shuttle. It's almost like an airplane gag. It's, like, totally shameless, and they just went for it, and so I'm laughing. Yeah? Yeah. I'm laughing. It's fun. Yeah, the, the execution of the jokes and the timing from the from the actors was was great. Um, I wouldn't mind living on a planet ruled by Jeff Goldblum if, if that's how things are. And as for my um, TV, I'm going to cheat a little bit. Because it's gotten a comic book adaptation, I'm going to go with American Gods. Okay. Which 
I was very, very worried about this show because that is one of my favorite novels, um, particularly because I live in the Midwest of the United States. So if you've read the novels, they go to some locations where I've had personal experience with, and they're very, it's very, very accurate as far as like how things are like in the upper Midwest where it's cold and snowy for a lot of parts of the years. And um, the the show has done something, it, it kind of has surpassed the book in what it's able to do or what it's done so far. It's the, the plot has drifted a little bit or they've restructured it to be a little bit more engaging because the book is, is quite long and it ponders and kind of wanders around because it, it's a road trip story, basically. And um, it seems to be a little more engaging and plot driven for, for pacing purposes. I like the visual styles of when they're doing like the uh, supernatural god stuff. Like whenever you... So the casting is spectacular. Kristen Chenoweth as Easter was a phenomenal casting. Uh, Julian Anderson as Media was, was great. I had a good feeling about it as soon as they said Jillian Anderson was going to be in it, because she's never not amazing, so... Mm-hmm. Oh, when, when she dresses up as Bowie, I'm like, oh my goodness. <laughs> yeah. I'm hoping that the show can continue. In the same episode, she turns up as Marilyn Monroe. Yeah. Amazing. Yep. The Lemon Scented You episode, I believe it's called. Yeah. But, um, yeah, those are my two highlights of the year, as far as the Borg Award. Excellent. Sean, what's your pick? So, uh, for best movie, I gotta give it to Spider-Man Homecoming, directed by John Watts. Now, this was not a total surprise to me, because Tom Holland did appear in Civil War and made a positive impression on me back then, but I was not prepared for how well he would nail that role. Like, thinking about it, we have had, by this point, three cinematic Spider-Men. And there are things that you could praise about all of them, but circumstances conspired against Andrew Garfield, and Tobey Maguire was not always on point, uh, especially in the later movies. The less said about the... We don't need to go into that. Check out Good Brews, Bad Views, Episode 7, if you'd like to know more. Yes. But Homecoming managed to do a lot of things that surprised me, right? They had... For all of this talk about bland and uninteresting Marvel villains, Michael Keaton as the Vulture was phenomenal. The high school cast, you know, I usually get irritated when we waste a lot of time on superhero civilian identities when those characters don't ultimately matter. But here, you know, they had Ned and they had Liz and they end up introducing a version of MJ who I was not prepared for, but I'm like, hey, let's go for it. And... In the center of all of that, like, all of those aspects work, and then you have Holland's performance on top of it, which was as good as I have ever seen a version of Spider-Man. I think it helps that they're finally find someone who can play him right as a teenager, because McGuire never worked as a teenager. They basically... Well, they had him more as a college kid, a college student, or someone in his early 20s. Like, everyone's like, Spider-Man's a kid, Spider-Man's a kid. Spider-Man's in high school for maybe a couple years in the comics, and then he's off in college. So I don't know where, like the cartoon, he's like a young adult. I don't know where this vision of Spider-Man being a kid really comes from. Well, because that's the first few issues and that's the ones that most people, well, not remember the issue specifically, but the feeling of them. But what it works for me is the idea of positioning him 
as the kid of the Marvel Universe. And when you have like an ongoing, a big cinematic universe, you can position him as the kid looking up to like Tony Stark. And it feels organic because we've seen enough of Tony Stark to feel like, oh yeah, he's the adult of that universe because he's an old guy. I don't know if I would call him an adult, but <laughs> that's, um, that's actually one of the reasons I have not yet seen that movie. In terms of age, not in terms of actual like behavior. Yeah, I know, I know. When you have the scene of him under the big like weight and he has to lift it up, because they already did that in Spider-Man 2, and they did it in most of the cartoons because it's the iconic moment from, uh, what was it, uh, If This Be My Destiny, where he has to lift the big machine. 300, 400, one of them, I don't know. No, 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 like early, early, like issue 30-something. But here it works because he is a kid, and he's playing like a kid, and the actor looks like a kid. So when he has this first pegs of despair of, help, he yells, somebody help me. You're like, oh my god, it's this kid under a wall. That's terrifying. Yeah. And when he finds his inner strength, when he's doing like, come on, Spider-Man, and he lifts it up, that's a lot more inspiring and epic than Tobey Maguire lifting it because at this point, Tobey Maguire already stopped the train. So like, oh, he's lifting a wall. Yeah. Mm. Whoop. I've listened to your guys' episode about it, and that kind of smoothed things over. But like, I mean, kind of like I was saying, like, from all the trailers and from all the media, I don't need Tony Stark in my Spider-Man movie. I know we're kind of trying to go a different way by moving away from the Ben, Uncle Ben thing, but god damn you, Tony Stark. I don't, you don't need Iron Man in a Spider-Man movie when you already have Spider-Man as probably one of the most iconic superheroes in, in Western I think, media. I, th- I think they've used him well for what they did. Yeah, I do agree that the character itself is overplayed, but in that movie, in that role, I think the only saving grace there is the problem that people never really, in universe at least, like the problem that people are having now with the with the Marvel movies is that nobody ever calls Tony on his shit, right? Like the, the whole point of Civil War is him endorsing a government bill uh, for registered superheroes, and then he runs off and Shanghai's a fifteen year old, and yeah. that hypocrisy never comes up. And I think. If there's any benefit to his presence in the uh, Spider-Man Homecoming, it's the fact that he comes off as such a schmuck to this kid that you, you sort of accept that this guy does not know what the hell he's doing. And the fact that he sort of breaks away from that at the end is an empowering moment for him. It's like, no, you don't have to wear the damn suit with all the gadgets or whatever. You can just be Spider-Man without it. You don't need Tony Stark. I'm waiting for whatever happens in Avengers Infinity War to be Tony Stark's fault like every other oh, yeah. Marvel movie. He is like the greatest villain of, of Marvel. Everything is his fault. They're going to kill him. Robert Downey Jr. is like 800 years old already. They're getting ready to give him the boot. Just like, it's okay, we don't need him, we're done. Oh, that'll be a nice day. But, uh, so my, yeah. my TV <laughs> pick... <laughs> just uh, to uh, wrap it up now this might be recency bias on my part but uh the punisher was damn good i was like i again this was a situation where you know john bernthal had been in daredevil season two and i had seen him as frank castle and i had been impressed by him as frank castle and there might have been like some because this was also like 10 i think or, or 13 episodes and there might have been this moment of hesitation of like 
is can he really hold an entire show? Can the Punisher as a character sustain 13 episodes? And boy, howdy, does he. I, I have never seen a take on this character that was willing to look at him as someone who's fundamentally damaged. Like, Thomas Jane's version was antisocial, but that was about it. Ray Stevenson was just like, you know, action guy, whatever. Dolph Lundgren was, you know, if he dies, he dies. That's about it. So, Bernthal just pulled so much out of this character. I didn't think that anybody could make the Punisher that deep because he hasn't been that deep in years and not even in the NS years. And Mm, the angles of, you know, looking at PTSD and the fact that, you know, the, the showrunners were willing to vilify him. They were willing to put him in positions and saying, you know, he did horrible things. And not to say that his family was like punished for his sins, but that, you know, he, all of the actions that he took ended up coming back to bite him in the ass, and his family did pay the price for that. Not out of some cosmic karma, but just because by being with them, he put them in danger. And it delves into his psychology in a way that I've never seen before. And it could have come off as corny and just poorly thought out and sort of rah-rah, guns, bullets, yes, but it, it never does. And, you know, Deborah Ann Wall comes back as Karen Page puts in a spectacular performance, just like MVP of the series. And Ben Barnes is Billy Russo, which, you know, the irony of that becomes immediately apparent when you realize who Billy Russo is in the comics. Just the casting was excellent. The writing was excellent. And this show, contrary to all of the other Netflix models, did not have a mid-season slump. Like they introduce uh, another thread mid-season another threat for frank to deal with but it's a threat that's foreshadowed from the beginning of the show so you feel like it's been building up the whole time even though it's not the a plot it worked so well and i usually don't have that much time for the punisher because he tends to be fetishized and this time they just resisted that impulse so well i mean that might benefit from um him having a pretty sizable presence in daredevil season two for what, like the five or six episodes he was in, where he wasn't just like there for a scene or two, kind of like Luke Cage was in Jessica Jones. You had a pretty already firm understanding of who this character was that you didn't have to go through maybe a lot of that intro that you have, that you did with the other characters. Well, I think in Daredevil, they were working really hard to position him as an antagonist to Matt, right? So you had all of this moralizing and all of this discussion of you can't go and kill people. And without that right like in in the punisher proper he does not have that kind of character who's representing like the the ideal of law rather than the ideal of vigilantism you can't kill people frank you have to be like me i only drag them (laughs) and throw them four swords down on their head on hard metal i'm fine (laughs) they're deathless ninjas i can kill them if i want That's exactly what it is, though. He does serve very well as an antagonist to characters who hold themselves up as moral authorities in that way. And then once you take that away and you make him the main character, not the hero and definitely not the anti-hero, because they even, you know, there are dialogues. There's this one scene where he's sitting with uh, Micro and he says to him something like, I'm going to have to live with this for the rest of my life, the knowledge 
that there were moments that I would have rather been, you know, in blood and bullets with my unit than be with my kids. I could never imagine another version of the Punisher saying those words and meaning them. So, yeah, big time kudos to the Punisher. Okay, uh, since we've talked about the movies I liked anyway, I'm going to skip straight to TV. Uh, I'm going to pick an anime this year. Uh, Tiger Mask W from Toy Animation, which started in 2016 but ended halfway through this year. So it counts, damn it. And it's quasi-remake, quasi-sequel to a very popular 1970s wrestling manga about a guy called Tiger Mask who was an evil wrestler for an evil American organization until he saw some very inspiring orphans and said, I'm going to fight to save these orphans now. And then the evil American wrestlers were like, we're going to kill you in the ring or outside the ring. And it had its own anime in the, like, the 70s and then again in the 80s. And what Tiger Mask W does, which is very interesting, it's two things. First, it's presented as a sequel to the original series. But it's like a sequel in real time, 40 years later. So the guy now called Tiger Mask is not, is not the old guy. He's just somebody who says, well, there's a new group of evil American wrestlers and I have to fight them. So I'm going to put on this mask simply because the name inspires fear in them. And all of, and all of his opponents, and then the, those guys are saying, well, if he's going to do it, we're going to do it as well. So it's kind of like, a Starman thing, like uh, your favorite, one of your favorite comics, John, where everybody is legacy, but it doesn't have to be like from family. It's like somebody just decides to pick up a name because he thought it means something and he makes it mean something again. And the other very interesting thing structurally that it does is that uh, the, the reason that we have this new tiger mask is because an evil wrestler like crippled his trainer. It's I suppose the plot of this isn't any more ridiculous than wrestling in general. What if wrestling was real? What if people really were like injured in the ring and, and murdered in the ring? In, like, so there's this evil wrestler and there's these two kids uh, and he kills their trainer. So one of them becomes our hero, Tiger Mask. And he goes on and he like trains himself to become the ultimate fighter. But the other guy... He decides to join the legion, basically the Legion of Evil in order for, to, to become strong enough. He's saying, I too want to take revenge for this man you have wounded so much, but I know I'm not strong enough, so I have to join you to take you from within. And none of them knows that the other guy is like the guy in the mask because they're both wearing masks on the mm. ring. And so they both try to take revenge, but they end up crossing each other's path and like hating each other while trying to take down the same guy. A, it's really fun. It's like there's only 38 episodes, 20 minutes each, and there's hardly any filler. Like it's all of the episode structures in a very similar manner, like 10 minutes of drama and then 10 minutes of people, you know, pile driving each other. But within that structure, they, there's enough variation in characters and in like introduction to make this whole thing feel worthwhile. And... I, I start a lot of anime series. I hardly ever finish them nowadays. Like, I'll start something and say, oh, this looks really cool. And, like, halfway through, I'll be like... Yeah. But this one, I just binge it. And it just works. So, our next category is the Oscar the Grouch Award for Trash We Love. And mine is a webcomic that 
used to be a must-read for me, uh, and I've kind of lost interest in it. It's uh, Something Positive by R.K. Milholland. There was a time when I would follow that strip religiously, just the lives of these crazy people and all of the weird stuff they'd have to put up with. But I think at some point the overall plot just sort of got away from the writer. And I do check in from time to time, and they do end up making like these really awful, <laughs> really awful jokes. Um, but for all that it is an acquired taste and some people can find the humor a little juvenile, uh, I still have, you know, there's still room in my heart for it, just not on a daily basis. Okay. Max? Um, my pick goes for Riverdale. Oh. oh Let me give you some context. So, um, when I first started moving in, um, I, I like to put on, uh, TV when I'm cooking or eating eating dinner and whatnot. So I started watching um, Riverdale because um, I have a couple friends who do a Riverdale podcast called Maple Syrup Blood Money, where they they watch an episode and then they do like a talk back about it, you know, stuff like that. And I had heard it was ridiculous, so I I, I listened to the first two episodes without having watched it and being like, okay, I need to see. Like, if this is as ridiculous as it actually sounds, and it is, and it only got, like, more ridiculous as the season one went on, and season one was only, like, 13 episodes, so I plowed through it in, like, a week or so, um, and then, um, I mentioned it to my girlfriend, and now we watch it together, because she's like, oh, I also watched that, so, um, but one of the things I do enjoy about the show, other than it's utter insanity is unlike shows like The Flash where The Flash has like an ongoing plot that takes like 14 episodes to resolve any conflict in Riverdale is over in like four episodes like there's a, uh, there's like a, a any like will they or won't they or these people are going through romantic problems it is done super fast um, a lot of exposition happens off camera so, you know, people are informed. You don't have to sit through the, oh, well, this has happened, blah, 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 blah. And it, you know, it just makes the, makes the episodes go by. And you don't have to, like, roll your eyes at the obvious CW drama, whatever. I tried to read uh, Mark Wade's Archie, like, a couple years ago, and there was an issue for, for a free comic book day. I couldn't get into it because I'm not at high school for so long. I just, like, I cannot relate to any of these characters. Um, I'm able to put that aside. <laughs> For this, because of the insanity of it, and it's got some good music selection, I'll give it that. Yeah, and didn't hear expect to, I did not expect to hear Nick Cave in this show. That was a bit of a surprise. I get what you're saying. My thing is just like I look at that, and the thing that comes to mind is Dawson's Creek, where you know that there are some forty year olds putting words in these quote unquote kids' mouths, and mm -hmm. and it being a CW show. It's always going to be like, you know, teenage sex and, and let's get drunk and, you know, dri drunk driving is bad. And also they got Cole Sprouse to play maybe the most irritating version of Jughead that I have ever seen. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This like narrating, someone actually posted like they took the narration quotes from his quote unquote novel. Oh yeah. Yeah. His, uh, Juggalog. This is like the worst novel ever written. 
like if you actually read what he's writing, it's like this guy is not the next great American writer. He's really no, no, bad. no. And I mean, he. The one thing I can say about how he acts or how the character is portrayed, it's it's the kid in high school who thought he was a lot more deep than he actually was because he's like, oh, Quentin Tarantino is like a great indie filmmaker. And I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, you're you're 15, okay, I'll let you. We all had that phase. Yeah. So, um. One of the things I will applaud for that show, though, is how they are handling the character of Kevin, who is, like, an openly gay man. Um, he's, a, he's the son of the town sheriff, and um, I thought they were going to go for the whole, like, oh, my father doesn't understand me, but he's, they've done the complete opposite of being, like, his father totally accepts, like, his son for who he is, and um, they're doing a little bit more with that in season two as he's been moved from, to, like, main cast. So I, I can applaud it for its um, LGBT representation. Well, that was true of the book, too, though, right? I mean, when they introduced him, because he's a recent addition. He was not around from the beginning. And when they introduced him, I distinctly remember like one of the selling points being that this was a character who did not have the, you know, the coming out angst and the, the, the homophobia to deal with in Riverdale itself. Mm-hmm. So that seemed... And, you know, I feel like... CW, when they do tend to go for LGBT representation as a whole, they tend to avoid those tropes specifically, which, you know, six of one cliche, half a dozen of another. I don't know how much of a difference that makes. But um, it just struck me as such a a wrong-headed approach to to these characters specifically. Like, let's make it dark and sexy and wish we could be Twin Peaks without... Yeah, I mean, Matt Mech is in it. Yeah. So, like, and never. I mean, this this will never. You know, it's Jeff Johns trying to be Alan Moore all over again, right? Riverdale is not going to be <laughs> any version of Twin Peaks ever, no matter how often. No, no, no you don't even, don't even put, that, put those two <laughs> in the same sentence. But at the same time, it's a show where, you know, Jughead looks at other characters and said, didn't you know? I'm weird. And I'm like... I mean, I mean, like I was saying, he's the high school tryhard. He's like, oh no, I can't be in a relationship. Oh no, I'm a, I'm weird. Yeah, but then also, like, Archie is the same way, right? He's like, oh, my music. My music is so important. Yeah, I mean, if anything, he was, like, the weak point of season one, as yeah. he's so reactive as a character. And they've made him more proactive in um, season two, except all the decisions he makes are just, like, the most idiotic things you could ever imagine a high school boy doing. Well, that's, so that's true to our, to Archie comics. That's his job, right? Did I don't, I mean, I haven't read any Archie comics, but I don't think he started a shirtless vigilante group that went oh, around spray-painting red circles. That's, that's a great name for a hardcore band. A shirtless vigilante group. Of course he did. Like, CW, like, eventually there will always be a shirtless vigilante group and faux lesbian kissing at some point. It's a CW show, that's just how they do. I understand why it would be interesting viewing, I just, I find it so exhausting. But that's probably just me sick of, like, the CW pattern in general. Yeah. Tom, what's what's your forbidden trash that you're going to confess? Uh, Thanks to uh, the magic of uh, 2008 and Bing Bang Comics of Ireland, who agreed to send me those... Hard to find uh, hardcover editions. I finally put my hands this year on a proper supply of Judge Dredd, the Mega Collection. Until now, angrily out of my grip. And 
there's they reprinting most of the classic draft strips and the spin-offs and a lot of this stuff is crap like they have they have a book in which Garth Ennis writes like a future space story of judges versus like space alligators and every book starts with an introduction and math miss the editor is basically saying yeah it's a cr- like we have to publish it because it's Garth Ennison is a big name but it's a crappy story and he retired by like one street before the last he retired and he asks I heard like please do that instead of me I don't want to do it anymore and I'm saying damn right I don't want to read this anymore <laughs> uh, but there are some amazing finds there just today for instance I've got the famous monsters collection which is dread versus all sort of like stupid classics monsters and you have Carlos Esquera drawing dread versus Dracula for like 12 pages and it's like classic hammer Dracula in the middle of this futuristic giant city with flying cars and he has this Igor that takes him in the house and he turns into a bat and he talks like in a proto Romanian accent it's amazingly hilarious in all the right ways and all the wrong ways how is this trash because it sounds amazing yeah you sounds like right up your alley well yes but it is like trash culture it's it's basically like a filling stream of like well he has to fight something oh he fights monsters a dread turns into a werewolf of course uh, he does red of course he does uh dread versus the blob in a strip just called the blob because those people were shameless like utterly shameless of, of exploiting every single thing that was selling or familiar at the time there were like two strips with phantom of the opera as robots oh no for, for some reason because you know they needed to fill the stream this week and john wagner was like what's popular now oh there's a new phantom of the opera production let's do that with robots yeah is walter one of them Please tell me Walter is involved uh, with that. No, no, I'm oh. not. So there's ups and downs, but the ups are really, really good. And even the downs are entertaining in their own uh, broken way. Other than Red Razors, which is Mark Miller Comics and is trash, trash, trash. So, Max, do you want to introduce the next category? Let, let's do Dishonorable first yeah. and then a positive note. All right. So up next, we have the Stevie... Ah, yeah, Stevie Sabolski Dishonorable Mention Award. Sort of sound, I can't even pronunciate his name right. Neither can he, as it turns out. <laughs> I have the all-too-late removal of Eddie Braganza. Yeah. Oh, yeah. From, from DC. He, was, he should have been gone a long, long time ago. This is a topic that people have been talking about for years. You guys have talked about it for n- on numerous occasions. That I mean, there's currently like a reckoning going around the United States on anyone who's ever committed such things as he allegedly has or has or whatever well, and other um, than your president oh god Ugh, not my president hashtag no uh, anyways glad to see him go but this just this dishonorable because it took way too long i think it's dishonorable for the entire medium because as we speak uh image has hired scott ellie who is a known harasser and marvel has hired some guy who is allegedly, I have to say it because, you know, allegedly harass people as well. And they keep on doing this and they'll keep on doing this as long as major news sites don't say anything because they don't care if fans on Twitter are angry, but once it came out on like BuzzFeed, yeah. then they like... Yeah, when it, gets be- when it gets beyond the usual 
people who are complaining about it. When it when it exits the comic sphere, when it crosses over to different to different markets or different demographics who are aren't their usual ones, then things will yeah. Then things start happening. They put uh, Braganza's face on the cover of some kind of like collection of like all the men who had been pointed out uh, because of the Me Me Too hashtag. So it ended up being all these these people who were known like Harvey Weinstein and all this, and also Eddie Braganza. And I'm betting that DC was just like, uh oh, they've turned over the rock. Eddie, time to go. Pack your <laughs> pack your bags. But, um, yeah, it, he should have been gone a long time ago. And, you know, this disease is still, this rot is still at the center of the industry. Tom, what is your dishonorable mention? Um, because it's still going, I'm going to give it to C.B. Sablewski. It's because this story is just, it's ongoing in terms of we still don't know all the details. And it's so weird. And it's offensively weird, but it's, like weird in a Cohen Brothers comedy kind of way because he gave himself a fake name and he possibly stole scripts from like people who pitched in for Marvel mm-hmm. and he paid himself or not and he also worked for Dark Horse under by the way editor Scott Alley oh. who makes it <laughs> it's ridiculous. Okay, I'm gonna need one and, of like those boards with like pieces of string to like connect all of the dots in there. The last piece of news was that Dark Horse said that because he wrote a Conan story and a Hellboy story, they said they did write a check not for Akira Yoshida and not for C.B. Sabluski. To who? Shrug. Shrug? So, <laughs> Shrug, like, amazing. Like, they won't say to who they wrote the check. Uh-huh. Because as far as I know, at a certain point, it becomes an identity fraud if C.B. Sabluski asked corporations to pay money to somebody who doesn't exist, really, and then took the money for himself. Yeah. Hmm. The amazing thing is not that he did it, is that his punishment was being made the editor in chief, literally failing upwards. Well, not exactly. The chronology is a little off. He cheated the company. He embarrassed, right now, his mere presence is an embarrassment to Marvel, unlike on media. And it wasn't just comics. La Figaro wrote about this, for God's sake. Yeah. La Mode mentioned it. And he's still the new editor-in-chief. That's amazing. So just to give like a, a another layer to this story, because my pick for uh, most dishonorable mention is also C.B. Sabolsky. So the thing here is, and this is like the roller coaster of emotion, right? So it's three news items that come out in a span of 24 hours. First one, Axel Alonso is no longer uh, editor-in-chief, probably because he lost Bendis. And my reaction to that was like, yippee, ding dong, the bitch is dead. Now we can finally move on. Then the next item is C.B. Sabolsky has been named editor-in-chief. Now, at the time, I remembered Sabolsky as being a largely positive figure, right? This is a person who championed diversity in comics, who was, in terms of his interactions with fans on Twitter and on social media, tended to be very level-headed and a person who you actually could communicate with and who would not turtle the way that Alonzo did and be like, oh, then everyone's just lying and they're all just trolls and we know what's going on. None of that childish behavior. And then I think immediately, like, he had not, he was still in the air on the way to New York, heading to Marvel offices when the story broke about this whole Akira Yoshida thing. And I was like, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on, because not, (laughs) here's the thing, though. 
So Akira Yoshida, my memories of quote-unquote Akira Yoshida as a writer is, I distinctly remember reading his like Age of Apocalypse and all those X-Men books that he was doing and thinking to myself, so why does this guy keep writing about like samurais and honor in like connections with X-Men? It's like, it always ends up going back to like really stereotypical stuff. And at the time I'm like, well, I guess Japanese writers are really like that. Or, or like this guy is just like, he doesn't care if he's playing up the kind of racist stereotypes and like honor, honor, honor. Taking it back. It's an amazing thing because, uh, Sean, have you ever listened to Wait What podcast? You know, I, I always want to, but I, I never find the time. I'm, I'm okay. kind of... Okay, because it's it's the two guys that w- wrote for the Savage Critics at the time. And they dug up Jeff Lester's, who is one of the hosts and one of the writers, original review of the Akira Yoshida comics from 2005. And it turns out that he wrote, this reads like a comic by a white man pretending to be Japanese. Oh, And he wrote what everybody thought... Akira Yoshida was Japanese. Well, listen, Jeff Lester... Amazing. Jeff Lester is a genius. This is known. But, um... Yeah, like, looking back on those stories now, it's kind of horrific. The the notion that, you know, and and also, I have to say, like, shame on, on Sana Amanat for defending him and for being like, oh, you know, he's married to a Japanese woman, he really immersed himself in Japanese culture. I'm like, if that were true, why were his stories reading, like, Frank Miller jacking off on samurai stories being like, honor, gaijin, you know, now she is ronin, in the middle of the age of apocalypse for what right what is that that's not japanese culture right they do not walk down kyoto street with uh like samurai armor on it's ridiculous i understand well i say i understand it the fact that they <laughs> marvel did not do anything in reaction to the story breaking they just got rid of alonzo and now they have like a guy who who's position as EIC could have meant good things for Marvel going forward and now he retroactively screwed it up. Somebody on Twitter asked, can you take your boss seriously if you discovered that for one year he went under the pen name Akira Yoshida and wrote stories about Westerns coming into Japan and, be- and meeting the words gaijin until they proved to the, you know, the Japanese people, oh, I have the real heart of a samurai. I have honor. And it was just... And on top of all of that, right, the fact that he, quote-unquote, apologized that I'm like, for this, you need to step down. With all of your good intentions and with everything that you may or may not have done, no, you can't. You know, you cannot go on to champion uh, uh, diversity at Marvel when it is now, like, known that you... Like, what is this exactly? And then someone on Twitter pointed out, like, the name that he chose was Akira Yoshida. So Akira being the most popular Japanese anime and Yoshida being Sunfire's last name that Chris Claremont came up with. It's like people probably should have suspected that something was up back then. But, you know, then... He had, he had like a, 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 a spinny wheel with two uh, first name, last names of like famous Japanese first names related to, to comics and uh, anime and manga. And this last one was last names. So it could have been like Akira Spiegel. Or, uh... <laughs> it's, uh, like, you're I know it's, like, it's not for me to say if he should resign, but the apology wasn't really well handled. And the only real apology, I think, would be to see him, if he actually 
goes forward with the with the diversity hires that he was talking about if we see Marvel actually changing after that and I really doubt that because well that's the thing right his claim is you know oh he was in Japan and he was running around East Asia on a talent search I'm like well where are they the last big diversity uh, hire that Marvel announced was Tanahisi Coates and that had nothing to do with Sibolsky They have more uh, Asian-based artists right now, but I'm not, I'm not really sure of the names because I don't really read Marvel titles. And he did hire some people for the company from Asia, but the idea that he, even if he didn't steal those pitches, the story ideas, what he did is still like really shit. It was. It's such a shitty take. And I, like, I, you know, I kind of wish that this had happened to Axel Alonso because I could, I could believe it from Alonso. And I have no problem, or, or even Quesada, right? Like, these are people who are gross, and, and we know that already. Yeah, so I was really disappointed. Uh, and, you know, hey, dishonor on you, dishonor on your cow. That's, that's what I got for him. Last category? Last category. Let's end it on a high note, Tom. Take it away. Uh, it's the Wharf category, the Wharf Award for Honorable Mention. Max, who okay. deserves some honor this year? Um, right now... I have to give it to Kate Beaton mm, of yes. um, Park of Vagrant. So as well as uh, branching out from having her historical funny joke comics about fem- uh, female figures in history as well as male figures in history and then going to children's books. Um, currently, she's revealed that her sister is going through a... She has to go through another cancer treatment. And um, every holidays, um, every holiday when she goes home, she does like family comics of like her and her sisters and her parents. So that like her fans have known of like her sisters and her family for, for a number of, number of years. It's something I look forward to every holiday. So currently she is drawing a number of like memorable life moments with her sister, um, Becky, and like trying to raise money so she can get. Um, cancer treatment in America because the treatments in Canada are like they're, they're basically saying like we can't do anything else for you here like it's she has to go for like experimental treatments or stuff or you know with you know slim chances if any so for the selflessness that you know she's putting forward these memories and, and of, of and showing like the pain that she's gone through and that her family has gone through because of this, I, I, I can't give it to anyone else. Like there's one, there's a four panel one where it's at, it's at an airport. And like the first panel is a guy is, is, is like a security guard or someone being like, I'm going to need assistance at, uh, terminal 21. And then it's next panel. It's like, ma'am. And then the next panel again, it's like, ma'am. And it's like, ma'am, you have to, you need to calm down, ma'am. And it's her like sitting on the ground, just like, crying and it's it's the caption is like i was trying to make it home before this happened but it didn't work and this is the first cancer thing happened a couple like two years ago so that's from the first time but and like it happened to her when she was on her like international book tour so like that fact that she's like re she's remembering these events and putting them down and showing them i i don't think i couldn't do that in with, with, with the amount of following she has completely agree tom what's your honorable mention 
I'm gonna go with uh, Sarah Horrocks. She's a comics uh, writer, artist, and critic who mostly operates independently and online, though she will have a part in the upcoming Image uh, romance anthology, Twisted Romance. And she's someone I've, I've been following online, mostly her criticism for quite a while. And she became this year one of my favorite critics, even though, and maybe because, our taste is completely different. Like, every time I think of something I like, she'll, she'll, I immediately I'll go to her Twitter to see, oh, she thought it was crap. And she, <laughs> she, like, I didn't ask her, I just, oh, she thought this thing is crap and boring and natural and annoying. But she's an amazing critic because whenever she writes about something that she likes, it makes me want to read it, even though I know I probably won't like it. She has a way of, like, intellectualizing her thought processes in a way that always makes me want to check it out. Like, she wrote this 2,000-word piece on the new Gundam series, like a manga series. And I don't care about Gundam. I don't want to read four... It's like an ongoing 5,000 pages of Gundam Origins. And I'm not going to read it, but after finishing her piece, I was, like, so tempted to just buy it all. And she, just by reading her stuff, she makes me want to be a better critic. Whenever I write something, I'm saying to myself... Okay, she's not going to like this because she, I'm writing about the stuff that I like. But if she would, how would she explain why it works? Yeah, I, I think it's very important to follow people like that. That you know will not like or enjoy the things you do. But seeing how that they describe things or how they present it, I think, is, is very, very important. Like you guys have yeah. talked about some stuff that I particularly like that you guys did not care for. And, you know... I'm not like, oh, rude to the smorgasbord. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, you have to be open to critical perspectives. I, some of the best, like more in the field of, of video games for me, but like some of the best critics that I enjoy are usually the ones who have views or, and particular tastes that are completely antithetical to me, but I value listening to them explain it because they explain it well. And I'm like, yeah. Yeah, and she always writes with such like deep passion, whether she writes from, oh, this thing is trash to, oh, this is amazing and you have to read it. It never feels like, well, I need to fill space and my paper subscribers want to read something so I'll get money. It's always, I want to, I'm writing about this because I have something to say about this. Okay, uh, Sean? Uh, ooh, so, uh, last award ever given on the smorgasbord. Uh, so my honorable mention goes to James Tini and the Fourth and Michael Dialinas for the conclusion of the Woods. Uh, thirty-six issues, complete run. Uh, they ended it really well. A great cast of characters through and through. They managed to wrap up all the plot threads and really give it a finale that had been building up for so long. Just a great ending, and I hope to see more from them in the near future. James Tini and I know is working on a bunch of dc books right now but i really don't care about any of that so whenever he wants to go solo again i'm there for it uh dialinas i think is starting to work with max bemis on a new miniseries for boom starting in march if i'm not mistaken and i i will be there for that so yeah i enjoyed the series practically from the word go kind of sad to see it end but at the same time it's it's the ending that was always planned for it so I'd all good things must end. Yes. And uh, speaking of endings, that's kind of it for us. Wow. Yeah. 75 episodes. 
Yeah, it was uh, a great run. We have covered some of the highest highs and lowest lows of the comic book industry, I think, over the last three years. We've had some fantastic guests on, uh, certainly including you, Max. We are so glad that you joined us for this uh, big finale. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. I still don't know how you how you actually got Chip Zdarsky on here, but uh, he was around, and we, we... we just caught him. It's, yeah. it's, uh, what what you do is you wait for the Zdarsky to pass, and then you start with your wicker Pokemon. You like weaken him exactly, and then oh, when yeah. he's when he's exhausted, you sending your strongest one. Uh, Earth types are best against Zdarsky. Oh, okay, yep. It's not a lot of people know that because it's a rare Pokemon, but Earth types are better. And then mm. you cage him, and then you can interview him. <laughs> but then you have to let him go. Yes. If there you, you go. If you love an artist, let him go. We're not misery. We were not going <laughs> to keep him chained to a bed for the next three years. And uh, yeah, it was a great time. Uh, before before this podcast is over, yeah, uh, I just I, we have to say if you enjoy Max's voice, Max has his own. Podcast yes, he does. You can listen to him on. Oh yeah. I'm on um, Good Brews, Bad Views, a podcast where we find out if good beer makes bad movies any better. We basically do like a slightly drunken commentary on um, various bad movies, but we get into deeper discussions instead of just making jokes as well. Uh, Mystery Science Theater 3000 already has that covered, but uh, obviously they're a big influence on us. Um, episodes are designed to be watched along with movies, but you don't necessarily have to, and you can learn a thing or two about craft beer, if you so choose. It's a great show. I enjoy listening to it, particularly when it's a movie that I've seen, because then I can, you know, listen to the commentary and remember the film while doing other things. And then someone will make a joke and I will just start cracking up in a public space and people will look at me like I've been possessed by the devil. But and like, it's Sean, it's a funeral. Shame <laughs> on you. What's so funny? And I'm like, they're laughing at Kelly Rowland for getting chopped up. And she had it coming, and it's funny. But anyway, great show, definitely worth a listen. Sean himself has a has an ongoing podcast that you can listen to if you miss his voice. I do. Uh, it's called uh, Games of Future Past. It's a comparative uh, video game review show. We're in the midst of tweaking a couple of things now that we're coming up on our uh, second year. And um, Tom, you also do many, many podcasts, but they are all in Hebrew. Yeah, but they're, they're in Hebrew. They don't count. If you're one of the oh. listeners and you want to follow me, I do write every once in a while for Seekwart, and I am on Twitter at, at Tom Shops, so you can, well, not hear me, but read me ramble on mostly about comics online. So uh, that was that. Yeah. Final thought, uh, Jerry Springer style. Uh, we've had a lot of fun here today, uh, but it's important for our listeners to remember, don't let any company screw you over because they will never love you back, right? Own your power as consumers, buy the books you want to read, and don't let anybody else tell you what's important or what's canon. You decide. It's your books. It's your money. And um, much like, you know, if there's one thing that, that I think all three of us know about comics is that nothing ever stays dead forever, so uh, who knows? Maybe someday the smorgasbord will rise from the ashes and get its own number one renumbered series again with gold covers. Embossed covered. <laughs> yeah. And for the, for the last time, I'm Tom Shapira. I'm Sean Edry. Oh, and I'm Max Nostorowicz. And to you all, bon appetit. Bon appetit.